And hello out there to all you Brooklyn Spoken Beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And uh, from time to time, we like to come back to the legacy of everything, which uh, uh, includes the National League of New York and what is still going on to this day. And uh, without further ado, uh, the show... To, to, to help us kind of paint the picture of the Mets side of things within the context of the National League legacy of New York is, uh, uh, first of all, we've had uh, Mr. Greg Prince on the show plenty of times, and he is faith and fear and flushing blogger and author of the same uh, book title, uh, who was also in our other featured guest film, that we will be bringing on in a moment. But, Greg, first, please, thank you so much for being on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. And as always, in this time, what is going on with you within the context of, of, of this crazy COVID decade that we're living in? Well, glad to be here, Sam. Glad to have baseball to talk about, even if it's baseball in the past tense, although. That's probably my favorite kind of baseball. Uh, just trying to uh, to stay well, stay healthy, uh, get some writing done, get a uh, a podcast of my own off the ground with my friend Jeff Heisen. We recently started it called National League Town, uh, which I think is sort of a cousin of Bedford and Sullivan in its way. So um, you know, try, trying to trying to think about baseball as much as we can without any spring training to uh, distract us from graver matters in this world. Well, it's certainly serendipitous that that's the podcast that has taken off recently because we will be talking about the National League legacy tonight. And without further ado, somebody who presented to the masses, the, the pop culture masses, the National League legacy of New York as it pertains to 1986 is Nick Davis director of 30 for 30's Once Upon a Time in Queens, who himself is a giant Mets fan. Nick, thank you for uh, joining us on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Thank you, Sam. It's a treat to be here. And uh, it's funny you say a giant Mets fan, since um, (laughs) I do think that those of us who came along to become Mets fans without having experienced either the Dodgers or Giants, um, I think we all chose one or the other. Just you, just sort of instinctively, you know, gravitate towards one. And for whatever reason, I became uh, ex post facto a New York Giants fan. All right. Well, uh, well, there you go. And uh, uh, you know, the New York Football Giants still exist as an entity and uh, still carry to this day the New York Baseball Giants legacy. Ironically, because in their business name it still says new york football giants so i i love the way intersports come together but we will also be talking about kind of comparing and contrasting the way uh, you know we we were talking before this about in terms of like stats and legacy and and all of of that nature so um we're going to go over to nick first here um because this is the first time on the bedford and sullivan podcast we always like to paint the picture as to not only your personal history, but also your New York 
baseball history, uh, fandom-wise uh, or otherwise, you know, if you played baseball. But please tell tell everybody your your history. Uh, well, my my New York baseball history. <clears throat> I don't think we want to go into my checkered playing career. Um, but my uh, New York baseball history actually began as a Mets fan going to a Yankee game. The first game I ever went to was opening day at Yankee Stadium in 1970. But I already knew I was a Mets fan, and I didn't really understand why we were going. Um, but my dad actually worked for CBS at the time, and they, had, they owned the team, and so we went. Uh, but then later that year, I went to my first Mets game, and then um, – yeah, it was just, you know, I was a, a huge, long, you know, fairly long-suffering Mets fan with no actual memory of, of 1969. I had sort of a screen memory, um, and I liked to pretend that I could remember what had happened, uh, but I, I, I didn't. And so I waited and waited and waited uh, what seemed like achingly long years in your, you know, childhood and, and adolescence uh, for the team to, you know, get good. Um, obviously, the devastation of uh, June 15, 1977 was, you know, was sort of the dividing line for all of us Mets fans. Um, and, and then it was just a long, long slog, uh, what I call the Beauclair years, until, you know, first the team was sold and there started to be stirrings. And anyway, we don't need to go into it, but, I, you know, I attended about 20, 25 games a year uh, during those years, and, and that was – you know, that was the, the essence of my Met fandom. So, you know, you, you of course, have an a interesting family background when it pertains to this era, which is something I, I'm actually going to explore uh, off-air with you at another time in terms of the pop culture legacy of 1937 and 1941 of my first season. But my question for you in terms of the New York baseball fandom is, where did your parents align? Uh, raising you as a Mets fan, where were they on the New York well, National League yeah. baseball fan? So they, interestingly, they were from California. They'd both been born and raised in, in California. Um, my dad, because there were no teams, no major league teams, uh, was a Yankee fan. Uh, and he was uh, devoted to Joe DiMaggio. But by the time I came along... We, we were Mets fans, and, and that's all I knew. The only other thing I really knew is we loved Willie Mays. And so we were really a big Willie Mays, um, uh, you know, family. And we loved Willie Mays so much uh, so that my dad got us tickets, all four of us, my dad, my mom, and my brother and me, uh, tickets to go see the Mets play the Giants on Mother's Day in 1972 because Willie Mays, our favorite player, was going to be in town. And between the time, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I mean, I, I don't need to tell you guys, but maybe some in your audience don't know. Between the time of our getting those tickets and the game, Willie Mays had been traded uh, back to uh, the Mets, or back to New York. Um, and, you know, I think Joan Payson is the only woman who loved Willie Mays more than my mom. And she, she brought him back. And so we went, uh, and it was an indelible family memory. Uh, to Mother's Day 1972, where Mays led off, which at the time I, was, I, I did not understand why is this old man leading off. You know, he's Willie Mays, shouldn't he be hitting third? 
And um, <laughs> but he led off the game. He he drew a walk, and he you know was on third base uh, with the bases loaded. And Rusty Staub hit this grand slam. We were up for nothing. It was great. And it was um, the next thing you knew, the game was tied, and Mays was up again, uh, and and hit the you know what proved to be the game-winning home run, and we all went crazy. Uh, and the Mets won five to four in a rain-shortened game. But um, so that that was that was like sort of the essence of our our fandom, uh, and, and was just that was where it was sort of forged as a family. Um, and then later, <clears throat> a couple of years later. Uh, my dad initiated the practice of taking us down to St. Petersburg, uh, my brother and me, for spring training. And so we would go every year and spend uh, four or five nights down there, really four nights, five days, and see five games. Um, and it, when the Mets and uh, Cardinals shared the facility, uh, you know, we, we went to Alline Field all five times and, you know, usually saw three Met games and two Cardinal games, uh, if possible. Um, and uh, and then sometimes we'd go over and watch them train at Miller uh, Huggins Stengel Field. So yeah, we were we were pretty deep into it. Um, and uh, and so then when the Mets and, oh, and actually we lived in California in '73 for a year, and and my dad took us up to Game One of the 1973 World Series. Uh, famously lost wow. on a uh, ground ball to uh, through the legs of, of Felix Mion. And then, you know, 13 years later, my dad and I went out to Shea to go to game one and, and scalped what ended up being really bad seats and a bad game, and it was cold, and the, the fans were flat, and the, the Mets were flat, and, uh, and we lost the game on the ground ball through Tim Tuffle's legs. And so that, and those were the first two worlds. In fact, well, no, I've been to one other, but those were the first two World Series games I've ever been to, and Dad and I were like, "Well, we're we're not <laughs> we're not going to any more Mets World Series games because they always lose on the ground ball to leg." Well, the last World Series game I was at, uh, Lucas Duda was involved, but it's like that's a whole other chapter. <laughs> yeah, not, yeah. Like, I, yeah, I think. It, it, you know, I hope I get this show off before we have to talk about 2015 again on this podcast. But anyway, so, you know, Greg, it, it, it's interesting that Nick brings up uh, Willie Mays because we're always talking about the connection uh, of how Willie Mays himself kept so many Giants fans behind. But I, I, I want to use this as a transition to Greg Prince. And I'm going to go back to you, Nick, in that I made a documentary about the Mets fan, and I had to use Greg Prince, and he was half of what uh, was the other half uh, in, uh, of, of the Mets fan, which was uh, the, the Chapman family. Greg Prince knows more about New York Mets baseball history and, and can spout off New York National League best, uh, baseball history better than anybody I know, really. So, Nick, starting with your documentary, I, we have to start with the other guest here, Greg Prince. And so I'm going to ask you, what was your experience like taking in New York Mets baseball history with uh, Faith and Fear and Flushing himself, as I like to call the Mets fan incarnate? Uh, well, my experience was great. I got to, uh, you know, Greg was the first person we, we interviewed uh, for the film. Um, 
because I just knew that he was, <laughs> that we wouldn't have any gaps. You know, let's at least cover the waterfront uh, and make sure that there's just no stone unturned. And then we can relax a little bit. Once we get Greg Prince in the can, as they say, forgive me, Greg, for putting you in a can, um, <laughs> then, then, you know, if somebody else, you know, doesn't get to exactly how the Mets won game three against the Astros, it's okay because we've got Greg on <laughs> And, and that really did prove to be the case. It was a very, uh, and apologies again, Greg, it was a very long uh, and, and somewhat taxing interview for him. I mean, for us, it was great. We, we just asked the questions and sit back and relax um, and, let, and let him go. But it was, it was very thorough and very detailed and, and wonderful uh, in, in every way. Greg, um, when you got approached, what was your reaction? Oh, I was very uh, touched, flattered, honored, whatever you'd want to call it. Uh, I, as I was uh, filming your documentary at Bergino's Baseball Clubhouse uh, all those years ago. Uh, listen, somebody invites you somewhere to sit and just spill about the Mets uh, and, and not – Oh God! You know who's going to be the backup shortstop this year, but rather the uh, the roller coaster of emotions from 1962 to really to 1987. I think was about as far as we got. Maybe if we had a few more hours, we would have gotten up to uh, 2020. But it was a uh, it was a great morning and afternoon and evening of of talking New York National League baseball. I, I do want to throw in one thing, you guys talking about uh, the 1973 World Series, something occurred to me the other morning. It was just one of those things I woke up thinking about. That A, and this, this is a bit of a downer, but, you know, well, let, let's hope that uh, we can turn it around as, as soon as possible. We're actually on a three-game postseason losing streak. The last two games in the 2015 World Series, the wild card game in 2016. And the, I thought about it. Had that ever happened before? And it mm. happened twice. The, uh, the 1999 NLCS games one through three, from which a mm-hmm. remarkable comeback was nearly forged, and the one that lasted 13 years. The last two games of the 1973 World Series, both lost in Oakland with uh, Nick and his dad out of the stadium, so we, we can pin it on, on them. And then, unfortunately, game one, um, even right. the 86. And even more unfortunately, the fact we waited 13 years uh, just, just to lose. Excuse me, game one of, of the NLCS, not the World I mean, Series, you know, in '86. Yeah, yeah. So those were the three postseason games in a row. But you know, we we climbed out of it in '86, and I I hope to. Uh, I, I thought of this, I guess, because uh, somebody had tweeted in response to one of those things where somebody says name in this case. Name like the craziest sports stat you can think of, and a Minnesota Twins history account I followed said the Minnesota Twins have lost 18 consecutive postseason games, which is six wow. times Jeez. as many as that's ever lost. And by the way, it seems like they've lost about, I don't know, 13 or 14 of those or more to the Yankees. So things mm. could be worse, I suppose. Oh, my God. Well, <laughs> but, that's, that's uh, and, and to, like, you know, uh, of course, yeah. Go ahead, Greg. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, loser win. Uh, it's all, always fun to talk uh, New York National League baseball with both of you. That's all. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And, and I agreed with uh, you. 
Um, but just like hearing that stat about the twins, I don't, I, it, you don't even realize it until you're like, oh my God, that's, I, I, like, I, I'd have to do so much research right now, and I'm not going to go off on the Twins tangent because I've never even been to Minnesota, even though I very much want to go to the Twin Cities. However, um, 18 consecutive games in a row means that all these series, they just keep getting swept. And that's just like, it's mind-boggling that they don't even get a game off in 18. I mean, it, like, like when you're thinking about, like, that, that means that you can't get out of the division series, which is exactly the case. And, uh, Nick, I'll go to you for this quick Minnesota Twins tangent. It sounds like a 30 for 30. Uh, boy, that could be a very, yes, it could be a 30 for 30. It's funny because I think the first question I asked, I don't know if it was the first question I asked Greg, but I did ask a lot of the sort of standard question is why are we still talking about the 1986 Mets? We're not doing uh, a four hour documentary about the 85 Royals or the 87 twins, you know? And so that they were the example, one of the two examples of like a, a you know, a good team and won the world series that nobody really nationwide would not be as interested in hearing about. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I think, um, a lot of it is the Yankees, and a lot of it, I think, is uh, you know, it's, it's divisional play. I mean, the way these divisions have broken down, they're, they're, they haven't been that good. It's not like you look at them and think, oh, boy, those 2005 twins with Maurer and you know, like, Justin Morneau or whoever. Like, boy, that was a team. They, they got robbed. Like, they've never been – well, I guess they had Santana. I don't know. I, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting one. <laughs> Yeah, it really is. So, um, Nick, let's go. Let's go to, into the documentary. Let's start to deep cut your movie, which is one of. First of all, it's one of the greatest documentaries I've ever seen, regardless oh. of the fact that it's about the Mets, and I'm biased. <laughs> right. So, Thank you, Sam. Thank you for saying that. Let's. Uh, yeah. Well, let's start with the uh, the National League legacy, and which you do touch upon. So where, you know, in terms of the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Giants, where do you begin with this movie, thinking of that element of it? Well, so I think that you have to, you know, the, the, the fact that the Mets were born from, I think as Greg says in the movie, a legacy of pain and hurt. You know, the, the, the Dodgers famously broke Brooklyn's heart by moving to uh, Los Angeles. The Giants, I, I think that that heartbreak is not talked about as much, but I, I can't imagine it wasn't as heartbreaking when, you know, Horace Stoneman took the team or, to, to San Francisco. And, and, but the, there was just this gaping hole in the heart of the city. And, you know, Greg's uh, podcast is well-named. New York had always been a National League town, and, you know, the Yankees were not to the taste of a lot of people. They won all the time. The pinstripes were sort of off-putting. Rooting for the Yankees was like rooting for U.S. Steel. There was all that. And the Giants and Dodgers had much more um, sort of character and grit. And so when they left, there was this hole. And, you know, pretty soon it was filled, uh, first by this idea of a Continental League, and, and then which was really just a kind of, I don't know what you call it, a stalking horse or something for two new teams in 
the National League, one of which was the New York Metropolitans. And, and so that, that's like, it's so baked into the DNA of the Mets, you know, the orange and, you know, the orange from the, from the, from the Giants, the blue from the Dodgers becoming the blue and orange of the New York Mets. They're the state's colors. It, it's like, that's who the Mets are. And it's, it, and therefore the, the team belongs to the city in a way that I think it's, it's, it's almost like the Green Bay Packers. I mean, it's almost like the city owns this team because of the way the Mets came into being. No other teams are really like this. You know, it's not like, you know, the Houston wanted a team, so a rich guy put up the money and they got a team. But it wasn't, it wasn't born from like a loss and then coming back. Can, I, can I so, just say, yeah. uh, Nick, if, if I can interrupt real quick. What you Please. are talking about, um, I think the Mets are a unicorn, as Greg would like to say, about uh, certain games when he's talking about like a like – a, Greg goes uh, into this unicorn thing in terms of, of like particular right. score. Right, 17 to 12. And yeah, the, right. Mets, the Mets, I don't think there's any – there's literally around the world no team that's born the way the Mets were born. Mm. Yeah. I think that's I, – I, I, don't, I don't think so. I can't think of any, but um, well, well, if, if, if there are, if it's you close. Think about, if you think about a place like Kansas City, let's say, not, not, not to bring up overtones of 2015, you know, they had to replace their team. They lost the A's. Seattle had to replace the Pilots. Maybe right, someday right. Montreal will replace the Expos. But, you know, they, none of these places were left behind with one team – Right. So, you know, what we had here in terms of that National League town ethos is, I think, certainly in this country, I can't speak for the rest of the world, but certainly in this country, uh, through the, the history of what we con- considered, you know, the Negro League notwithstanding, what we've considered Major League Baseball in terms of the American League and National League, uh, to have to say that, no, it's not enough. It's not enough just that New York has a professional baseball team. No, nobody ever called New York an American League town. Certainly, right, right. The, the Yankees' brand is very mighty and strong, and it stands on its own, but nobody gets, ever got excited about the idea of the American League in New York per se. You know, not right. to say there aren't well, rivalries and, and all of that stuff. Is, the Giants, you know, particularly the first two decades of, of the last century, the Giants were the dominant team. The Giants were the Yankees before the Yankees. And, and so it's like the Yankees were the Johnny-come-lately, and then, you know, they had to share the polo grounds. It was sort of humiliating. And, you know, and then finally they get their own stadium and their own identity, really, with the Yankee Stadium. And obviously they then eclipsed the Giants and Dodgers in terms of success on the field. But – I think when the Dodgers and Giants left town, I think people realized, wait a minute, no, this is really a National League town. I mean, I don't think, you know, like when, when the athletics up and moved from Philadelphia to Kansas City, was there a great outcry in Philadelphia? Hey, wait, we need another team. Like, no, it's fine. I mean, we get the Phillies, you know, and nobody thought that when, when the Mets, uh, you know, when the Dodgers and Giants left. The Yankees were not enough. For and, and, and speaking of which, just thinking about the fact that, you know, I feel like football is going to come up, uh, you know, randomly here, as it did earlier. Um, 
the Rams who just won the Super Bowl, all I keep hearing is how nobody cared in Los Angeles. And they have a crazy, like, we're talking about a, 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 a city that took in the Brooklyn franchise as that was the last connection to Brooklyn being an independent city. And they seem to have all this weird, odd relationship to sports, especially with their football team, who apparently the town did not care like the Bengals did, who gave the day off, win or lose, to everybody the next, the next day. Um, whoever right. wants to take that, go. <laughs> can, can, you, can you imagine New York going – what was it, 22 years, I think, between the time the Rams and Raiders left and the time the Rams came back, followed by the Chargers. Complete void in a particular major sport and just kind of shrugging their shoulders and saying, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll, watch, we'll watch whatever they show us on Sunday in, in case of football. Or, you know what, we'll just be we'll, – we'll follow – I'm sure some people, you know – that they say some people, probably Raiders fans, claim that the Raiders are more popular than either one of those teams in Los Angeles right now. But can you imagine New York just kind of sitting back and saying, eh, well, you know, we, we can do without professional baseball or professional football for, right. for 20 years, and then we'll come back. I mean, this, since we're off on this tangent, the, I mean, the Rams had this amazing history in Los Angeles for, what, about 50 years? And then it just disappeared. And me personally, I always thought it was weird that they were in St. Louis. I know they had, they won a Super Bowl while they were there, <laughs> and I feel bad for the people in St. Louis who lost them. But hey, you know, St. Yeah, Louis no, is like, now lost two football teams. Celebrated it more than L.A. at this point. I, I, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised yeah, I mean, if St. Louis from, had a break. From what I could glean, uh, St. Louis people aren't too happy with the Rams. <laughs> Well, yeah, but um... yeah, but I think that the I, I heard of a couple of people because I still have family out there, and there were a few people who I knew who, who said like, oh, there were people, you know, saying oh, we weren't aware that the Rams had come back, you know, like it, it just right, doesn't right. seem exactly. to occupy that role in in the civic life of of these, you know, of, of L.A. anyway. And I'll I'll, I'll say that like. It's less of a big deal in football at this point that the uh, uh, that the Raiders left for Las Vegas because I know Dolphins fans in New York, I know Cowboys fans in New York. It seems to be much easier to pick up football teams uh, yeah. as a yeah. nationwide thing than it does. Yeah, you know, you can, there's only they only play once a week, and you can. You know, you can watch them no matter what. And, and baseball is yeah, it's not, it's essentially a local game. And they've, I, I forget who the, no, the, the Colts... Uh, they even did away with the protocol of having the Giants on at one and the Jets on at four, or vice versa. Right. Because <laughs> they just figure, well, we'll just shove them both on at one o'clock. This way we can show the Steelers or the Cowboys or whoever. Yeah, you got to remember that that when Nick and I were growing up, and I, I have never had a football conversation with Nick, but <laughs> we grew up in the 70s, and New York football was absolutely abysmal. Now, I, I grew up a Giants fan who, who thought the Jets were fine, and I eventually came came to rooting for them pretty hard, too, for a while. I, didn't, like, I knew nobody else on Long Island where I lived 
who was a Giants fan. There was some residual good vibes toward the Jets because it hadn't been that long since they won the Super Bowl and Joe Namath was Joe Namath. But but the, the, the point here being that, yeah, you, you talk, Sam, about Dolphin fans in New York or Vikings fans in New York. I, I don't know who, who these people are specifically, but that was really not uncommon <laughs> because there was no reason unless you had a reason. In my case, my dad liked the Giants, so I rooted for the Giants. But there was, there was no – oh, boy, i got to get on this bandwagon, because there was no bandwagon in the 70s. And football is more and more like that through the years. So, yeah, the, even if you don't have the Sunday ticket or uh, satellite or whatever the hell it is that lets you follow, lets you watch every game of every team you like, you're going to see these glamour teams over and over again. Whereas, again, baseball, yes, it, it has national broadcasting. It has a Sunday night game of the week and sometimes a Saturday game of the week. But really, it's a local thing. It's a nightly thing. It gets into the bloodstream. And, yeah, you know, we we all know Mets fans who live elsewhere, and it's a lot easier now to follow your team from wherever you are. But, you know, Giant and Dodger fans tried to do it after 1957. They would, would beam some of the games in, the San Francisco and Los Angeles games in, uh, onto, I think it was Channel 13, was a, a commercial station at the time. You had the recreations, which you you guys have surely you know heard people talk about, and it just kind of yeah. Some people and and Sam and I know a lot of those people who who main, maintain their affiliations with the teams that left town, but ultimately you need it in your bloodstream every single day. You need it coming at you. You need it in the atmosphere, and that's what that's what baseball is. And that's what New York needed, and that's you know what what we picked up on in 1962. That was that we couldn't live without. You are listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, and thank you, Greg, for such great transition back to Brooklyn to the Brooklyn Trolley Blogger, Mr. Michael Colon, who is called in if I can actually get this thing going with his hand raised on that board. Mr. Michael Colon of Bensonhurst, welcome to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, as always. Thank you, Mr. Sam, and uh, happy to be speaking with Mr. Prince and Mr. Davis. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Mike. Hello, Mike. So, Mike, before we go to Nick Davis about his wonderful documentary on the Mets side of things, because we were just talking about the legacy leading up to of the Dodgers and Giants, leading up to the Mets. Um, just come at us with, 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 you know, everything you've been listening to. I mean, you know, you came in on a football conversation. <laughs> Where are you right now in your head, Mike? Well, we're talking National League Baseball. I find it not ironic. Uh, I find it very it's a very New York story that once upon a time, the owner of the New York Giants, Jim Mutry, also founded the New York Metropolitans and laid that team effectively to rest. They sold it. It moved to Staten Island. The rest is history. And then, you know, you fast forward, and Mrs. Joan Payson, a former owner of the Giants, comes along, and she founds the New York Metropolitans that we know and love today. Uh, it's like a circle of life, as, as, as they say. And I, I've always found that to be a fascinating story. 
But just to jump on something that uh, Mr. Nick Davis started off the show with, uh, with regards to Willie Mays, you know, I'm a staunch National League supporter, and that goes beyond the Mets. Uh, Of course, it started there. My mom was a Mets fan, but my aunt was a Mets fan, uh, and she started me on my education about Willie Mays, taught me uh, everything that I can absorb about Willie Mays. And my other uncle, he was... Uh, at the same time, give me an education about Roberto Clemente. So, you know, the National League was injected into me at a very early age. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's funny that my father and my uncle were both the Yankee fans, uh, although me and my cousins, we were Met fans, and we spent equal time both at Yankee Stadium and uh, Shea Stadium. Mm. That's and, great. I have a question um, for this esteemed yeah. group, if I may. So it's interesting because all this talk about National League Baseball is, is making me think of several things. And, and I don't mean to be the old man, uh, you know, yelling at kids to get off his lawn or, or shaking his fist at the clouds. But the, <laughs> the, 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 the late, you know, the, 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 the two things I want to talk about are interleague play and the DH, and I, I feel like I just wonder, you know, if if this if we were if this were a football podcast, you know, there is no there is no notion or identity, is there anymore to the AFC or the NFC, and and I'm no. just very worried about the loss of identities of the leagues. And, and the, you know, so, when I was a kid, you had a I, National I, I League was, office. There was an American League office. You went and you got the, your red book, the American League office. You went to the National League office. They were different offices. And now there's just the commissioner's office. There's no president of the National League. There's no Bill White signing the, the ball. And I, I, don't, I don't know. I just I, – I really worry that this DH is almost like the last nail in the coffin of separate league identities. Nick, you're you're exactly where I wanted to go. Uh, at so, it's it's you know uh, let's let's go right into it now. Um, I because I, I definitely did want to. Uh, it, it's remarkable uh, that we still have this like we're holding on to this weird National League American League thing when something like basketball operates exclusively on this this uh, geography conference, more or less. Right, um, right. And, and it's one of the more popular things going on right now. Uh, so I do think it could be on its way, but I bet you at the same time, and not to say that anybody at the commissioner's office is listening to us right now. However, you have to, as a business have a, a, a connection to the pulse. And so, Greg, I'll go to you first with what Nick presents. Um, do you think, as I was wondering, uh, whether this is going to go away? And I would argue that since Ban Johnson and the National League have been coming together, and I'm, I'm currently reading a book very intertwined with that because of John G. Zinn's Charlie Evans biography. Um, like, it's basically a snail's pace to the two leagues merging. What, what, what is your thoughts on all of this and whether it will eventually come together to split it geographically or whatever they come up with? 
I've sadly, I think we've been on our way here for at least 25 years, and it was 25 years ago that interleague play was sprinkled into the schedule. Of course, you had 16 teams in one league and 14 in the other by 1998, and that was sort of inequitable. So now we have interleague play every day with a 15 and 15. We we all know that part. Um, You know, as much pride as I've always taken in the idea of a National League town, you know, so so much so that we we named our our little podcast for it. So I I was asked about 10, 11 years ago by somebody with the Mets, do you think that still holds sway? And I couldn't honestly say it mattered by 2011 Mm -hmm. or thereabouts. Certainly not in a way that needed that, that didn't need explaining. You didn't really need to explain it in 1962 or 69, or even as late as 1986. There, were, there was a definite difference in the style of games and a different, definite difference in the cultures that surrounded yeah, both I, I, the New York teams and the leagues. And now I think you know, there, there has been that effort for 25 years or more to kind of flatten it all out and say, hey, you know what? what, why don't we have these teams in big markets playing each other more often? There's more money to be made. And, of course, we, you know, we're, we're at a point where the last vestige of that is one league that lets the pitcher hit and the manager has to think things through, and one where they just gave up on that almost 50 years ago. And, you know, I, I have waited on my lawn looking at the clouds, waiting <laughs> Uh, for the moment that the American <laughs> League would come to its senses and say, you know what, you guys are having so much more fun over there. This is what we want. Because, again, even though, yes, people will often spit at the idea, oh, you, you, you like watching a pitcher strike out or whatever, as much as I said before, you never heard anybody say, well, New York, that's an American League town. You never hear anybody say, you know, you know what, I really like the American League style of baseball. People are always going on if asked to choose the National League style of baseball, meaning the hit and the run and the stolen base, and, yes, the occasional sacrifice bunt in the nine slot, because the nine slot is where the pitcher hits, or you get to the seventh inning and you have to decide whether you're going to leave the guy in or not. And the American League, it's just, hey, we'll just throw nine guys out there, and they're going to hit their heads off, and you know what, maybe that's more entertaining in the long run and maybe we stopped teaching pitchers how to hit so long ago that it's folly to pretend that they are, they're going to get up here and be able to hit their brethren. So right, as, as right. my usual long-winded way of answering your question, uh, <laughs> it's going away. I mean, they may keep the designations because there's some branding in it and because there's right. some sentiment for it. But if they can figure out a way to, to name the, the, the two halves of baseball or divide them in such a way – that they would make more money off of tomorrow if they wanted to call one the Justin League and one the Bieber League, uh, they would do it. And I, I, you know, and and guys like us would be sad and you know would would would, would get on our podcast and get on our blogs and and say exactly they've they got us anyway. Yeah. And nothing would change. Right. So, so Nick, the nineteen eighty six New York Mets. I, I think may be the greatest National League New York baseball team that has ever lived. So let's get into this debate 
your documentary, which was so atmospheric, and, and I want to go off on that tangent at some point, but we have to start specifically with what attracted you to making a movie about them. So, do you think well, off the bat? Yeah. Do you think off the bat that they are the greatest Nash, uh, New York National League baseball team that's ever lived? I I can't even tell you how happy I am that you are asking that question. I I, I was always the sort of very superstitious Mets fan, uh, and I remember in the middle of that year, in late June, uh, Carter had a nagging injury, something I can't remember what, and he missed a game, and he said, "I hate to miss a game because we have the chance to be the greatest team of all time." And I just thought, what, are you out of your mind? You can't say things like that. And, but I felt the same way as that team came together. I, 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 I may have mentioned this to you before, Sam, that when I was a kid, I read, uh, I'm not even sure I actually read the whole thing, but I had the book, The Boys of Summer, about the 55 Dodgers. And to me, the 55 Dodgers were the epitome of a National League baseball team because they were great. And they won it all, and they were still being talked about, you know, all those years later. It turned out it wasn't really that many years later. <laughs> it was probably about 16 or 17 years later that, that Roger Kahn wrote that book. But um, it seemed a lifetime ago to a 7- or 8-year-old reading the book in the early 70s. And, and so I was just waiting, and I thought, what must it be like to root for a team that is like this, that would be so storied and so great? So when the team came along and formed itself so beautifully and magically in the early 80s, and each year, you know, there was you draft a guy named Strawberry, and then Hernandez comes, and then Gooden is out of this world, and then they get Carter, and you've got four tentpole players. It was like, and the electricity at Shea was just like something you would dream about. I just felt like, oh, my, it's happening. This is incredible, and I want to remember this. Um, this feeling because it's not going to happen again, and and sadly it hasn't for the Mets. Uh, they they've, they've had great teams. They may even win another World Series, but I don't know that they're going to have that kind of excitement that we felt at Shea in the in the mid '80s. Anyway, this is a long way of answering your question or not answering your question. Is this the greatest National League uh, New York City team ever? I think that this you can't put them above the 55 Dodgers. You know, maybe statistically they they are, but although I don't know, I the Dodgers won a lot of games, um, but they were they were as storied, so they're in that conversation in terms of a National League uh, team. Um, but I also it's the 1905 Giants. I mean, to me, the 1905 Giants with Christy Mathewson uh, and uh, uh, Iron Man McGinty and Joe John McGraw. I, I just think like you know, it doesn't get much better than that. Um, I mean, talk about Giants. So uh, yeah, those are those are those are some of my thoughts on that question. So I'm going to go over to Mike McCollum next with this. It, you know, in the context of history, a lot of people do think that the 1952-1953 Brooklyn Dodgers were better than the 55 Dodgers who won. It just so happened that they beat the Yankees. So when talking about the greatest New York National League baseball teams of all time and, and, and the way the 86 Mets come into that, uh, you know, it, it just 
it's it's so interesting uh, where Nick is coming from, Mike. That like he was raised on the Boys of Summer of specifically the '55 Dodgers, and that was his benchmark. But it's it's so interesting the way it's all about the way we take in things as they come to us, one way or another. Absolutely. Uh, on the one hand, you know everything is relative to the competition. The '86 Mets they won 108 games. That's up there. That's elite. You know, that's uh, that's pretty pretty awesome stuff. But I sort of agree with Nick Davis. I, I would put the 1905 Giants up there. Uh, but I would also include the 1920 and the 1921 New York Giants as well. That's a particularly fun team of mine. And how could you not put the 55 Dodgers up there? But, Sam, you make a great point. Some teams that never did actually win were better than the teams that did. Uh, for instance, uh, 86, we were going into 86 with high expectations. I think the joy and raw emotion of 1984 coming out of the dark years was much more fun, enjoyable, uh, uh, and and daily jubilation and seeing that win total grow. Whereas 85, those expectations grew. And by 86, uh, you know, we were chomping at the bit and anything less than a World Series would have been a major disappointment. And New York has got a big, big taste of that, you know, leading up to uh, or into the late innings of Game 6 of the World Series. So in a funny way, 84 was more fun more uh more spontaneous more more uh just uh more childlike in the spontaneity spontaneity and, and just the pure emotion of it whereas 86 came with baggage uh and you know and, and the playoffs certainly made us lose a couple of pounds and we were shaken by the time we entered the world series after those first two games so, uh, uh, no, 84, 84 didn't turn out the way we wanted, but 86, you know, is top of the chart. It's hard to decide which is best. Uh, to me, it's relative to the time and the competition. And you go back to the days of Uncle Robbie and John McGraw, you know, the 19-teens and the early 1920s. Uh, you know, those are some spectacular times in New York City baseball. Greg, I, I mentioned before the podcast when we were uh, just going back and forth how I, I've realized that it's such an irony that baseball is the most comparable, contrasting, statistical sport. Uh, while the conditions are not exactly equal as much as we like to compare wins, losses, the average, the home runs, and the RBIs, and now, of course, more so OPS and, and slugging and, op- and on-base on perspective. It's, it's, it, it, I don't know whether that shakes my, uh, like, like, you know, statistical overload of, of comparison or whether that, that kind of in, it reinforces the cinematic, uh, visceral elements that baseball provides. 
Well, it, it's sometimes hard to look at a statistic from a hundred years ago when batting averages, at least at the the upper end, were higher. When you had you know thirty game winners, not completely uncommonly, whereas that sort of thing is unheard of today. Or you know, Christy Mathewson pitching three shutouts in the nineteen oh five World Series. I, I think what what's beautiful here is that. Each of the, the teams we're talking about, kind of the standard bearers of their era, whether it's the 1905 Giants, whether it's the Giants who won the World Series in 21 and 22, whether it's the Boys of Summer era, or the, let's not forget, the 69 Mets who won 100 games, or the 86 yes. Mets who yeah. we know won 108 games. Um, they all spawned legends in their time, and they spawned generations of fans. And people took those teams to heart and it defined lives going forward. You know, I'm, I'm a Mets fan because of 1969. I was ready for the 1984 that Mike describes because we've been waiting to get back to something like that, you know, after it faded throughout the seventies and, you know, hit rock bottom on June 15th, 1977, as Nick said, and, you know, that, that whole National League town feeling coming back in one big rush in 84 and building on that 85. And then we finally got our reward uh, in 86. I mean, one of the things I, I just loved about Once Upon a Time in Queens is that it didn't pretend that 1986 fell into our laps from out of nowhere, that it was that, that climb up the Kilimanjaro, if you will, of aspiration from 90 wins and being kind of close to 98 wins and being achingly close to finally the mountaintop. Um, again, we, we could certainly compare what a 108 and 54 team in 1986 looks like versus the numbers that the Dodgers put up in the 50s or the Giants in the aughts or the 20s. But again, I, I just think that the, the beauty in all of them is what they they spawned. The fact that people want to keep talking about them. I don't just mean the way we, we're sitting here tonight talking about them, but the fact that, you know, you go forward from 1986 and there's a whole generation of Mets fans who look back on those days, or even if they kind of hooked on in the, in the years to follow because the Mets had established themselves. The fact that there was such a torch lit for the Dodgers in the 50s that people didn't want to let them go, never mind the fact that the franchise itself was in Los Angeles, the fact that Roger Kahn could come along tw 20 years after he covered the team in 52 and, and write the boys of summer, and so many people to this day hang their hats on that sort of thing. Or, you know, in, in a micro sense, because it was really only that one year, although, again, the team that didn't win is probably more famous, talking about the Giants in 54 and 51. Uh, yeah. The legend, the legend that lives on from that. I mean, again, you, you don't know how they, they would all compare against each other. You don't know how they would compare to the competition of their days. Obviously, anything from before 1947 is a little suspect. <laughs> Talk about uh, the, the competition in what we think of as Major League Baseball. But it's, it's just great that, it, that it's all there for us to, uh, to examine and think about. Yeah, I think I think you 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 guys are hitting on it, and Mike, you're you're right to point out like the '52 and '53 Dodgers were so great, and they were. I didn't mean to mischaracterize Boys of Summer. It's it's you know Boys oh, of no, Summer yeah, yeah. is very much about that team also, 
and, and the building of the team that culminated in a championship in 55, even though that may not have been the best team. You know, it's funny. People say, like, well, what if, you know, you know what, if, what, if, what if Buckner catches the ball or what if somehow the Red Sox had won? You know, it's possible the 87 Mets would have been that much more hungry and actually, you know, if they'd kept their personal demons, uh, you know, under, under wraps, uh, maybe they would have right. been – sort of like the 55 Dodgers. Maybe they only win 98 games, and but then, you know, dominate in October, um, you know, rather than fading and becoming what we now know of as the 87, uh, 87 Mets. Yeah, I, I also wanted to, I'm glad you mentioned them, the 54 Giants were always a particular favorite of mine. Um, you know, the, the, the catch is sweeping a team that won 111 games in, in you know, in 154 game season in the, in the world series. I mean, that, that's, that's an incredible achievement. Yeah. And Greg, I'll go to you since you, your, your grandfather team that you like to say are the New York giants. If you want to uh, run with that one. Well, you know, we, we talk about teams that didn't necessarily win everything there was to win uh, in anticipation of, of this facet of the conversation. I grabbed a book off my shelf called The Giants of the Polo Grounds, written by Noel Hind in the 1980s, and he's updated it uh, fairly recently. But this is one passage of the state with me all these years that really put the, the giant franchise in New York in context for me. If I can just read this quick paragraph for you. The team started the season well and took aim on the Chicago White Stockings for the league lead. Chicago, surprised to be chased that closely, played superbly, but so did New York. Welch pitched at a pace that earned him 44 victories. Keefe would win 32, and Roger Connor would lead the league in hits with 169 and win the batting title. Over a 4th of July weekend, Chicago visited New York. Mutry's team took three out of four games and pulled to within a game and a half of first place. The crowds at the polo grounds counted between five and 10,000 for each of the contests were delirious. A pennant race was on in the New York Nationals for the first time ever with the rage of the big town. That's the 1885 Giants who <laughs> sort of helped define what the Giants were going to be. And when we talk about you know, setting the stage for baseball in the 20th century, these were the Giants fairly late in the 19th century. There was still some time to go. A hundred years before the 1985 Mets, because, again, this is the 1885 Giants. And you know what? They didn't win. They didn't know with their pennant. They lost to those Chicago White Stockings, who I, I guess we we, we ah. know the Cubs today. So you know, in 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 a given year, you might get the the greatest story of your time, and you still don't win the gosh darn pennant or the World Series. In the case of everything after 1903, you know what Mike says about the 1984 Mets is how I feel about the 1985 Mets. Um, the 1984 Mets were a bit of a rumor to me because I was in college that summer and only caught a little bit of what they were doing firsthand when I, when I came back to New York for a few weeks. The 85 Mets, I always say, was it was the year I was waiting for my whole life to be you know, an, an, an adult and to have access to seeing this marvelous team of Carter, Hernandez, Gooden, and Strawberry every night and this incredible chase to the end of the season versus the Cardinals and finally to be on the cusp of greater things 
was, was just a dream come true to me. And to this day, it's still my favorite Mets team ever. And the team mm. the year after went further and won more. And I, I, I love them for it. And I, I love a four-hour documentary that was made about them, all of that. But, uh, you know, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to get the trophy at the end to have fallen in love. And, you know, again, I think if you, you, you corner giant fans who were around back then, you know, they'll wax poetic about the 51 giants and the way they caught the Dodgers because there was nothing better than beating the Dodgers if you were a Giants fan. And, oh, yeah, we also won in 54, and that was great too. So, again, they're probably, you know, different strokes for different fans, as they might say without rhyming. But, uh, you know, you, you don't have to win the whole thing. And I think this is – you know what, guys? I, I think this is we're, – we're getting into a little bit of the National League town psychology here because – when, when we, you know, we talk as Mets fans and we talk you know, with our giant DNA and our Dodger DNA, we can accept the fact that life is beautiful even without winning the World Series. And I don't know that every franchise rooted in New York, their fans, can say the same thing. Uh, you were listening it. to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. And before I go to you, uh, Dick, on, on this, uh, I, I, uh, I, I want to say – that um, that that's that's what's so interesting to me. What he just said is that like we're talking about if we're talking about the Dodgers that I'm focusing on, and we're talking about the Mets that uh, continue the legacy. If we're comparing and contrasting the franchises, what the Mets of '86 were able to get done was quicker and faster from a developmental standpoint than basically what the 1941 Dodgers and what Larry McPhail was able to start. So basically from 1939 when they started winning to 1955 when they finally won and Larry McPhail had nothing to do with it. Uh, uh, how did I uh, – Frank Cashin was able to – I almost forgot his name. Frank Cashin was able to do it on a cocaine-shortened level, <laughs> if you will – of what the nineteen, you know, just like that's what the seventies and eighties, in terms of the way it's presented to us, sometimes for us who were born in the middle of the eighties, like it seems as if that development that took the Dodgers uh, almost fifteen years to get done happened in a shorter time for the Mets, but they squandered the opportunity. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I, I no longer look at it that way um, because they did get the one. Um, and they, I, I feel like they they gave us, you know, Greg says, and it was my favorite team ever also, 85. Like, I, I loved 86, obviously. But there was so much pressure, as Mike was talking about. Like, it wasn't as fun. It was it was dominant and it made no sense and it didn't feel like the Mets and it was great but like eighty five there was such and eighty four you know eighty four coming out of nowhere there was such joy if they hadn't won in eighty six and then they never won if that team had never won I would be right there as disappointed as you know as anybody obviously more so you know but but because they did win I feel like isn't it a little Churlish of us to expect more than the one. 
You know, I, no. I, 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 I belong to a, a number of Facebook. I, be, I belong to a number of Facebook groups that show baseball pictures, Met pictures, Shea Stadium pictures, and whenever a picture of Doc or Daryl or even just a 1986 picture in general shows up, you can't go three comments without reading. Oh, what a waste! And right. I don't what get a it anymore. I don't. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I I had that reflex for a little while as well, but. My God, they get they gave you the the championship season of a lifetime. They gave you and the post incredible of a careers. Right? Yeah, and you know, yeah, I would have liked more. They would have liked more. We all would have liked more. We got one. We yeah. got one of the yeah. greatest ones, and yeah. you know. <laughs> I'm I I can't, I, no, 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 I can't do anything. I can't do anything about the 1987 or 88 or 89 or 90 Mets anymore. So I'm just going to say I'm fine with it. We got one. Yeah, I mean, I was furious during those years, furious and, and you know, angry and sad and, you know, between, you know, every year there was, a, you know, Pendleton, Socha, Billy Randolph. I mean, there were these villains coming out of nowhere to knife us through the heart. Don Ase, I think I have never really forgiven. But, you know, it's like <laughs> with time, because we do have the one, I, I don't know, I feel, I feel very, very, you know, grateful for the, the joy that that team gave us over that whole run. I mean, you've you got to count 84, 85, and, you know, watching it be built from in the moment Keith got here. I mean, it was, it was exhilarating, and, and you can't really ask for more. Um, you know, I'm I'm more upset and will be more upset if we don't win with Degrom. You know, to have wasted an entire career from Jacob Degrom will be absolutely upsetting. You know, and to not have built off 2015 when that team, uh, you know, should have gone first. Should have won that World Series. Absolutely, should have won that World Series. Yeah. Um, but so, so Nick, some of us uh, wouldn't before, have to be there. Before I... Before, yeah, right, exactly. Before I ask you the next question, if possible that we are able to go in another hour, are, are you able to go and is everybody able to go another hour? I'm here. Uh, is, is, it, is it an hour or nothing? <laughs> we go another half it, it, We'll see. We'll see. Uh, well, all, all I know is that here's where I want to go with this. Your uh, documentaries, not many, not as many documentaries as you would hope for, as good as they can be, uh, really put you in the atmosphere of the era, uh, whatever era they're trying to tell you, whatever atmosphere they're trying to present to you. You do such a good job for the, the, the somebody that wasn't necessarily experiencing this every day, like me, who was one and didn't even know who the Mets were at the time um, in, in Virginia. <laughs> you know, even though the Norfolk connection, which we could go another tangent with, you know, like, I, I guess as a filmmaker, first of all, I'm very thankful and, and I, I appreciate that, I, I'm very appreciative that you wanted to put the audience member under four episodes in a as close to a daily you know experience as you could possibly do within four hours um and 
you know, in as you you keep going on about being such a fan, how did you want to translate your experience as a fan into filmmaking? Well, I think that it was both a blessing and a curse uh, because I I think I was so close to it and so close to the material that I sometimes had to, you know, and thankfully we don't make these things alone, you know, and I had wonderful editors and, and, uh, uh, you know, another producer who would say, you know, back off, like you're too close, like this little thing and trying to make it clear that, you know, whatever, the third game of the St. Louis series in 85 and spending five and a half minutes in that sequence when, you know, they didn't win. Like, what's the important thing? The important thing is they didn't win. They didn't have enough pitching and they fell a game short. And Carter, you know, the important thing there was to set up the fact that Gary Carter doesn't like to make the last out. But he makes the last out in the Cardinal series and that'll come back in the fourth episode when he doesn't like to make the last out and he doesn't make the last out against Geraldi. So it was just a constant sort of what is going to strengthen the story and not get so lost in the details of, of 1985 or 86 that you, you, you lose sight of it. And, but because it was so archive heavy, it was wonderful to just say to the archivists who we were working with, bring us stuff because we want this to feel like it's a, it's a time machine. We want to go back there. We don't, we, we're not poking fun at it. We're not like distancing ourselves and saying, oh, ha, 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 look, they're smoking and they don't know that the cigarettes hurt them, you know. I mean, we're doing a little of that, but we're really just bringing that all to life and, and, and giving us a chance to relive it or, in your case, uh, Sam, live it for the first time so you really do feel what it's like. And we were, you know, thankfully, we, we had a healthy music budget so we could afford music of the time that, that really was, you know, that music and not just sort of sound-alike type stuff. Um, and, um, yeah, it was just, it was a, uh, I mean, it was such a uh, labor of love for me that I was very insistent that when we were doing things that were wrong, you know, that like, I, that I knew were wrong, I, I, I made sure. In fact, I reached out to, to Greg. I, I would have reached out to you, Sam, had I known you at the time. But like, there was, there was one <laughs> thing that was wrong. You know, we used some footage from 87 of Roger McDowell, you know, wearing his uniform upside down, which he never did in 86 or at least there's no footage. Of it. So we used this footage of him doing it in 87 and was like, can we get away with this? He didn't do it in 86, but it fits with the spirit of the thing. And we're not going to show the fact that they're wearing the 87 road uniforms and you'll just think it's him in 86. And I, I, I had to sleep this night because of this thing. Um, but I asked, <laughs> I think 10, 10 super fans who I'd met on, on Twitter and to a man, they all said, or actually a woman in, in uh, two cases, to a person, they all said, it's fine. You know, and, and, you know, and so I, I just I didn't want to make those kinds of factual errors because you don't want people distracted by you never want to distract your audience with anything. You know, you want them to, to get what you're trying to give them. And if they sort of see something and say, hey, well, you know, that wasn't uh, that wasn't right, you know. Uh, it just takes them out of the story, and, and we just didn't ever want that. That You know, it's weird because I never, one, I never noticed a uniform because I guess 
it's upside down. <laughs> and, uh, it's upside down, and you don't. Yeah. See, you, his, his back is, or his front is turned away, so you don't see that script. Horrible. I don't. I didn't like it. The script New York. Um, I would never. Right. I, we would never have gone. With well, that. But, like there's a still of so from, from, for from one, Spring Training '88 in there. You know. Really good picture. The, the script, we had. I think the script is a lot better than the Yankee New York is what I call it from later right. seasons yeah. of of that yeah. era. Um, yeah. The 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 one that looks exactly like the away the uh, Yankee New York jersey. So I, I will yeah. give the script yeah. a, a, a props before I give uh, the rest of it props. Uh, I, I mean, you know, the Yankees props. Uh, so Mike, I want to go to you next. Because with everything that Nick just talked about, you have an interesting relationship with the 1986 New York Mets because of what you were personally going through. <laughs> interesting story, indeed. I was in Europe. I was in Germany during the 1986 playoffs. And I was having to follow the World Series through Stars and Stripes, getting that delivered out into the field because we were in the middle of operations. It wasn't like I was back at base and had access to a TV and could stay up till 3, 4 o'clock in the morning to watch the game live. Uh, that wasn't happening. And if it wasn't for my mom uh, purchasing me a Sports Illustrated subscription, and if it wasn't for my aunt sending me all the newspaper clippings and the headlines from the Daily News and the Post in the mail, I would really have nothing uh, tangible to grasp and say, this is what I have from 1986. Uh, I'm, I'm forever grateful that they did that for me. Uh, but, yeah, I was in Germany, you know, and I picked up on the Mets in the early 70s, like Nick and, and, and Greg. You know, uh, the 73 Mets were, were, you know, it for me. That's what pretty much got me started. And I lived through those dark years, the Tom Seaver trade. Sam, you know what my brick says at City Field. Guys, my brick at City Field has to be probably the only negatively speaking brick at, out there. And it says 1977 still hurts. That was originally mm. meant as a joke because my wife wanted to purchase, purchase it for me. And she asked me, what do you want? And off the top of my head, I said, 1977 still hurts. I'll get back to you. She didn't hear that part and mailed it in, and it's there. And you know what? I'm, and I'm proud of it. 1977 still hurts! Exclamation point. Anyway, you know, so I lived to those. But no, considering, considering the Wilpons collected your money, I will take it. <laughs> you know, so I, I lived to the 70s, and I probably never attended more games in single seasons than through those seasons. Because my mom had purchased, and my, and my aunt together, they purchased uh, season tickets. So 77, 78, 79, 80. I was there. Uh, I was one of the uh, seven and 8,000 people there in attendance. Uh, so building up, you know, early 80s and again to 1984, 85. But by 86, midway through the season, I was out of country. Uh, I know what kind of start they got off to. I know by June they were just running away with the division, uh, but once I got overseas into Germany, uh, it, it was awfully hard to keep track uh, keep track of them on a current basis. I would get information 
anywhere from uh, 8 to 12 to even upwards of 36 hours late, and especially when we were out doing operations, and they happened to be NATO operations, uh, I was relying on Stars and Stripes and, and, and reading game recaps and articles uh, in my little corner of Stars and Stripes that had to uh, accommodate and entertain all kinds of, you know, uh, reading people. So it wasn't just sports. It was, it was a newspaper. But like uh, Armed Forces Network, they also have to make uh, families happy and wives happy and husbands happy and children happy and grandparents happy because uh, they live with us in our communities and go to military schools. So all these outlets have to uh, service everyone. So, you know, I got my little uh, what you might call six-inch by five-inch article every day, and they were coming in about two days late, and that's how I got to follow the 86. World Series. So I am technically still waiting for my championship as a lifelong Mets mm-hmm. fan. Uh, and, and it sticks in my craw. And I say that with just because it's still one of the greatest. It is one of the greatest moments I've ever been to at a baseball game. It just happens to be a Yankee game. The Chris Chambliss game, 1976, game <laughs> five against the Royals. And the pandemonium that ensued after, you know, that ball fell out of the sky into the right field stands. I've never been to anything more crazier than that still to this day. Now in my 55th year on this planet, uh, I, I don't begrudge that it's a Yankee moment, but I'm still waiting for my Mets moment. Mm-hmm. And And before I finish, Nick. Allow me to say that, you know, I, I think I've seen everything and, and just about everything read or written about the 86 Mets. You have, you brought me closer to that team than any one person, thing, book, etc., has ever brought me to that team and that experience until actually watching it. Nothing, nothing <clears throat> ever brought me closer inside and made me experience it like the passionate Met fan that I am. The DVDs didn't do it for me. Uh, going back and reading it, watching it, here, nothing did it for me quite like your production. You brought me there, yeah. and that's the closest I've ever been, and I thank you for that. Oh, well, thank you. It was a total joy. I mean, <laughs> I, I do think, you know, I mentioned it before. I remember, uh, I, I may have mentioned this to you before, Sam. I was at a game in August of 85, well, maybe late July. I have not been able to find this game. I think it was against the Expos. And Gooden was pitching, and the place was rocking, and I was, whatever I was, 20 years old. And I just remember thinking, like, remember this. Remember this moment because it's not going to happen again. And when I started making the film, I remembered that moment, and I thought, okay, here is my chance to live this, to live that feeling, you know, and, and, and you know, spend the time to try and recreate that feeling uh, for people who, you know, were either fans who were unfortunately stuck in Germany or, or, or you know, or non-fans or people who weren't even born yet or people who don't even like baseball. But I wanted to give them that feeling, and um, that was certainly the goal, so... Uh, I mean, it was the greatest. It was the greatest moment in my fandom life. I don't. I did think we were going to get there again in 2015, and I was, you know, almost as excited about that team as I'd been about the 85, 86 Mets. But um, 
you know, maybe maybe we'll get there. Maybe. Greg, I want to go to the uh, the party element because I think it's a whole other chapter. However, I want to stick with you for the atmospheric element of Nick's movie. Having lived it and now having not only, you know, watched the movie but been a part of it, where are you on, on the atmospheric element of it? Well, but I think it's great what Mike said about experiencing it via Once Upon a Time in Queens after having had to experience it secondhand all those years. I mean, you're talking here to somebody who saw or heard or attended 160 of the 162 regular season games that year. Um, and Nick brought it all back to life. And as, as much as I do <laughs> sit around and, and think about the Mets and think about the 1986 Mets, you know, there were parts of that year living it, both from a Met angle and just a New York in that moment angle that, you know, were dormant, as will happen after 30-plus years because you've got other things to think about. And, you know, when you, when you fired up that movie, uh, those nights in September, uh, not that I was necessarily looking to go back and live in 1986 per se, but, you know, it was back in the 1986 season. And the nineteen, you know, and the one up to the nineteen eighty six season, uh, and yeah, in in that for a couple of hours in that New York City, where I won't say nothing else mattered, but nothing mattered more than the Mets to the pulse of the city. And although I was not, you know, I loved the twenty fifteen Mets, obviously but I didn't ever see them on the same plateau as the 69-86 Mets, and I imagine if they had won, I would have placed them there eventually, and it would have been sweet. But that little window between when we won the pennant against the Cubs and before the World Series actually started, for those four or five days of just walking around, being excited and running into people who wanted to talk to you because you were wearing a Mets jacket or whatever. That was like the closest I'd come to feeling 1986 since 1986, certainly mm. after that era had sort of left the building. You know, I mean, it was still in the air, you know, to the end of the 80s to 1990, all those pennant races that didn't work out. And even when we, we got there in 2000 and we came sort of close in 99 and 06, it was great for Mets fans. But it had to break through to get to the World Series and be the only New York team in it. Broke through to another level that I hadn't felt since 1986. And it, again, of course I'm biased. And no, when I was watching the Chris Chambliss game on TV, I was not excited about it at all. But, you know, I, I will allow Mike his, his memories of it. But um, <laughs> what I, I, I guess I'm saying is that certainly I've lived through enough Yankee World Championship excitement, again, whether I wanted to <laughs> or not. It was just different in 2015 for those few days that the Mets were mm-hmm. in it. And it was just different in 86 than anything else I had felt 
to that moment, and that was after 77 and 78, and what little I could glean of 69 as a kid, and 73, which I gleaned a little more, which, again, I, I feel like I, I, I keep coming back to, to advertising this concept, and I'm not trying to, of a National League town. But, the, but there was something, even in 2015, that it felt that there was just a vibe in the town and in the entire, if you'll excuse the expression, metropolitan area, that you know, it just brought people together, people who didn't care about baseball, like, like Nick was saying about uh, what, what a, a team like that does. And this was just 2015, which you know, was a team that came together in essentially two or three months, let's be honest about it. I mean, yeah, you know, David Wright had been there for 10 years and so on and so forth, but the idea of the Mets as this, this wonderful challenger team that was going to contend and go to the postseason, that like, was a gleam in our eyes in June. <laughs> and it came to be in August. And it was, you know, sadly, November 1st, it was over. Um, this 86 Mets thing, and again, this, this is, you know, to get to the point of your question, you know, this was building and building and building. And it would not have felt the same way if it was just a sports team having a good year. It was this city falling in love with this team and this team reflecting its city. And that was, again, the beauty of Once Upon a Time in Queens. That, 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 that is the city that existed. That's the city that existed again for a few hours. Very, very quickly about that 1976 season and the Chris Chambliss game. You see, I was a Met fan, and we still had Tom Seaver. That was the thing. Anything the Yankees did as a Mets fan, and my father being a Yankee fan, didn't bother me. So I got to enjoy that as a baseball fan. All that mm, you're, you're, you're a bigger man than I. I, I you have a generous right. soul, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But all that I was miserable. I remember watching that Chambliss thing. Ooh, that Chambliss thing really <laughs> bothered me. Uh, you know, pr- prior, to, prior to 76, you, you could definitely – you could definitely run into kids at school who said, I like the Mets, I like the Yankees. And it yeah. was all like one kind of big third-place melange there, except for 73. Uh, once they actually won something, once they were actually on the verge of winning something, they spent the whole summer in first place. I remember watching them clinch the division. I think it was the last weekend of the season or pretty close to it. It's like, so – this is what it's like to have the Yankees win. And we, are, we can't even pretend we're any longer the team in New York. <laughs> so I recognize the drama. I, again, I, I, they, they played on Channel 11 all winter long. Phil Rizzuto yelling, the Yankees win the pennant, the Yankees win the pennant. Because in those days, you had a local broadcast as well as the national broadcast. And, you know, I, I got a, from a burgeoning historic love of the game standpoint. I got, a, I got kind of a kick out of the fact that this did happen locally. It happened in New York, but God, I was sad because it just meant <laughs> this is over. And then 77, they signed Reggie Jackson. We trade Tom Seaver and, you know, that, that yeah. paves the way for everything else we, we've been talking about intermittently. Yeah, tonight. I always but, felt like uh, not enough was said about the Reds sweeping the Yankees in the 76 World Series. Like I, That, to me, was so wonderful. <laughs> and and it, oh. Yankee fans just sort of, I don't know, they, it, it got forgotten very quickly, and the next thing you know, they get Reggie Jackson. And, and that's, well, that's, how you, fan, that's how you build on losing a World Series. <laughs> Right. As a exactly. National League fan. Right, right, as a exactly. National League fan. 
as a National League fan, I enjoyed watching the Reds sweep the Yankees. Uh, that didn't change. Yeah. My animosity for the Yankees really didn't set in until 77, 78, again, with the Tom Seaver trade. And there was one day of back day at Yankee Stadium with a bunch of my cousins, my, fa- my father, my uncle, we go. So I five of my cousins back day. Now, back then, all the models were different, different players, different sizes. So one cousin got Willie Randolph, one guy got Reggie Jackson, one guy got Chris Chambliss. Uh, somebody had uh, uh, Huma, uh, Alu Pinella. I unsheathed mine out of the plastic. I look at it, and I get Carlos May. I mm. couldn't tell you in a Brooklyn way how pissed off I was that I got stuck with Carlos May. And I think from that moment on, <laughs> my disdain for the Yankees what was set aflame. <laughs> you were listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, and, and let me just say, we're having a real Brooklyn moment right now. National Grid just showed up to check a gas leak in my apartment. Um, so I'm kind yeah. of, like, thrown off. It, it, uh, Greg, what, what did I say that I was going to touch upon before going to you, if you remember? Something about a party? No, I. Uh, oh yes, you use yes, the word party. party. Oh yes, yes. About the 1986 party uh, element of it, Nick. We're talking about the 70s and 80s. We're talking about the cocaine era, really. Like, like just generally speaking, this is how. At the this is where a lot of contradictory things are being thrown at people, where it's just like you're addicted. Meanwhile, take this pill more or less. So it, it's so interesting to me, considering Matt Harvey and Tyler Skaggs stuff just came up, where we hmm. recognize that this is a problem that is not gone from baseball, that is not gone from society. In fact, it's more of a societal problem than it is a baseball problem. However, from the fact that the 1986 Mets won, it's almost celebrated everything that happened other than the fact that they didn't win multiple World Series. And a lot of times it's pointed at the addictive element of the era as why they didn't win multiple World Series. So if we could touch upon on the roundtable purpose, first with you, Nick, as to that element of the 1986 New York Mets. Right. I think that there is, you know, there is the this sort of, you know, the the nice way of putting it is they were a bunch of rascals, um, you know. It it's but the you, it's on a continuum from rascals to you know this is a heist movie. I I used to sort of think of the movie as like a heist movie, like a bunch of rascals coming together for one great score, all the way down to no, it's really more like Goodfellas, and they're criminals and they're bad guys, and we root for them because they're so incredibly charismatic and charming and talented but this isn't going to end well um, because crime doesn't pay and you you can't live these sort of lawless lives and expect to succeed at the highest level of your sport you know maybe things will bounce your way for one magical season as they did but um, you know the it was tricky for us because, you know, you don't want to endorse this kind of thing. On the other hand, it was true and it was societally a lot less um, uh, frowned upon. I mean, there was, it was celebrated and there was a sort of, 
you know, wildness in the air and the bulls were running rampant on Wall Street and everybody on Wall Street was doing cocaine. And we had this great bite that we didn't use from Roger Angel where he said cocaine was <laughs> was like running in the streets. You know, and he used to see when he was leaving the New Yorker in Midtown, he used to see these guys just, you know, making drug deals like right outside the New Yorker offices. And so it was it was much more sort of a part of the culture and 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 therefore accepted by a, a, a healthy percentage um, or healthier, a larger percentage than accepted now. You know, but it is it's it's very tricky and very complicated. And one of the things a lot of us who loved Matt Harvey as Met when he came along, I, I think a lot. I was not alone in thinking like this guy would have fit on on the '86 Mets. I wasn't thinking consciously of cocaine. I was thinking of arrogance and bulldog determination, and I'm better than you, and I'm going to stomp you, and that kind of dominance of personality. It, it turned out he also obviously had had a problem, um, but uh, yeah, it's 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 a fascinating thing. I mean, I think you know, as Greg was saying, like for us in telling the story, it was amazing how much that team reflected the New York City of its time, and and that isn't true anymore. It wasn't true in 2015. You didn't, you didn't look at those guys and think, wow, boy, they're really capturing something essential about this spirit of 2015 New York City. They may be great. They may be beloved, you know, for at least a month or two. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't so bound up in the city in the way that the 86 Mets were, which was the, the great fun of, of, you know, telling the story anyway. And, Greg, here's the unfortunate part. Um, it may have been exactly the story of the 2015 New York Mets. It may have been the story of middle the, the middle 2010, that um, this story wasn't being told the same way as the 1986 New York Mets. But maybe, I mean, you know, you even hear it was, con- it was controversy about Yoana Yo- Cespedes smoking cigarettes, where one of the most famous photos of the 1986 New York Mets is Keith Hernandez smoking a cigarette. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's one of, it's one of Nick Davis's uh, thumbnails on, on ESPN. Well, <laughs> you know, you have to, you know in, in the moment of 1986, putting aside the fact that we, we have all these evocative stories that Nick was able to tell and others have attempted to tell, you know, from April 8th opening night in Pittsburgh to October 27th when, uh, you know, Jesse's glove goes into the air never to be seen again. Nobody was, you know, there was nothing in the paper that said the Mets are on cocaine. I mean, we, we kind of know about it now, <laughs> And we, we had those those incredible stories of, you know, the, the clubhouse guys talking about bringing Daryl his uniform out in the parking lot and stuff like that, whether that was cocaine or anything else. But, you know, they, they kept it under wraps or they kept it away from the cameras. And, you know, we don't know what every, every team was doing. We don't, we don't know what the rest of the National League was on or not on. And, you know, we knew about Keith Hernandez having testified the September before. But, you know, I think we all kind of just decided, well, that was then and he's over it now and everything's great. And, the, you know, he 
he got his sentence, uh, his suspended sentence from Peter Uberoff, and we we held our breath to make sure uh, he would go along with the community service aspects and the uh, the random testing, and we had our first baseman back, and we never would have dreamed what was revealed about Dwight Gooden a year later. So you know it, it was. I, you know, I, I think we all indulged in a little bit of suspension of disbelief if we really had taken a step back, especially as, as was brought up in Once Upon a Time in Queens. You know, that was the year of Len Bias. And it, it was not, you know, some, something that was sort of brushed aside by any means. I think it was just, we, we just decided, yeah, but, you know, our team is out there every night and they're, you know, winning every night. So everything is fine. And again, you know, then you look back and say, wow, how did, how did they manage to do it um, to, to get to the mid-2010s? You know, we'll, all, all we know really is what Matt Harvey copped to last week. And remember, he wasn't the one on trial. And, you know, we don't, you know, it's easy to say, wow, he must have, <laughs> he must have really, maybe he was on something that night that he was yelling at Terry Collins to let him stay in the game. Or maybe it's something that came later. It's, uh, nice. you know. It's hard to put those pieces together, I guess, is all I'm saying. And, you know, I, th- I think, you know, even even for a swashbuckling band of Mets, uh, I think we still want to believe that at the end of the day, you know, they're the good guys. You know, you go back and forth between, you know, the title of Jeff Perlman's book, The Bad Guys Won, um, you know, like almost in the same breath, if, if you watch the interview from which that title emanates when uh, Johnson is talking to uh, – to Bob Costas, he said at one point the good guys won, and then talking about yeah, the way that, they reviewed. Well, I guess the, the bad guys the, won. Yeah, the good guys got it. Johnson says the yeah. good guys got it. Um, so it, it's it, yeah, it's it's complicated. I mean, they I I don't know. I Greg, maybe I I I, I certainly wasn't running in wilder circles, but I I was pretty aware that that they had a partying reputation. And I do remember the New York times reporting that, uh, when Gooden missed the parade, that Gooden had missed the parade due to a case of the sniffles quote unquote. And it, it was, it was so, I don't want to say it was obvious, but also I had a, a, you know, somebody in college told me, Oh yeah, they call him rock star. And it's not because of, of that. He plays rock and roll. It's because he does rock which I guess is a, a street term for cocaine. And I just thought, well, that's not true. But then the sniffles thing, really, I was like, how, how yeah. hungover do you have to be not yeah. to make a parade? But, it was, it was then, pretty – that was a series, gut punch. Yeah. But by then, though, the World Series is over. It, it sucked that he missed the parade. It, it's always felt right. like a, a, you right. know, an ellipsis right. where there should have been a period. <laughs> but it, it all got done. And, yeah, right, you know, right. nobody was suspended for drugs in the middle of that year. And the idea that they right. could be just, yeah, right. you know, they were, listen, these, as, you, as, as was in the film, these guys went to, four of these, these guys went to jail, <laughs> but we, right. know, in Houston, but it wasn't for that. <laughs> it was because the Houston cops overreacted, at least that's as far as, you know, we were concerned. And, right. you know, it was, it was all lovable. No, it, it wasn't right. detrimental. No, but there, there was no, at that moment, there was no Len bias on the team as far as we could tell. Yeah, there, there, there may have been whispers, yeah. um, but they showed up and they kicked ass and we just figured that they, they like, your, your, your phrase, 
rascals. <laughs> uh, you know, this this was part of their personality. They played hard and they partied hard. But we, you know, at least me, sitting home watching it on Channel 9, didn't probably comprehend what exactly that meant. Mm. It, you know, I was just telling the the, guy, the, the National Grid, the, the lovely folks of National Grid making sure that I am not about to die, by the way. After all the – I'm not – like, I need to win a championship. I don't need to be – here while this place blows up while I'm on a podcast talking about the 1986 New York Thank God for National Grid coming to check my yeah. stove and turn it off before my 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 super comes tomorrow. Uh, Mike, partying with the 1986 New York Mets, partying with the 2015 New York Mets, like bridge the gap here. Oh uh, well, you know what? We brought up Dwight Gooden. I have a couple of things to say. And, yeah, the newspapers sugar-coated his behavior in the 80s. But look how Mr. Wilpon uh, handled uh, the circumstances surrounding Gooden in the 90s. He lambasted him in the media, told him he'd never wear a Met jersey ever again. It was two totally different approaches. Uh, you know, in the early to mid-80s, I would say the Len Bias was a turning point. That may have been uh, a turning point towards political correctness, and a, a wider range of things. But back in the early and mid-'80s, you know, political correctness was not really a thing yet. Sensibilities, for better or for worse, media, media coverage, scuttlebutt, scandal, was not a thing. People were still in the habit of looking the other way. They didn't want to know what demons you had in your closet. They just wanted you to show up to work and do what you had to do. Uh, you know, remember the days of the martini lunch? That certainly doesn't exist anymore. Point being here that times change. And, you know, we're talking about 40 years ago now when baby boomers were intermingling with Gen X. And today, 40 years later, you know, uh, Gen X is intermingling with millennials and, and Gen Z. And there's a lot of intermingling of very, very differing ideas, opinions, and and and, and thought processes in in so far as how to move forward in the society. Uh, but no, we are in a totally different place than we were in the '80s, and the '70s, and the '60s, for that matter. You know that era is definitely over. By the nineties, yeah. mid nineties, all that started to change. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, it's a pendulum. It's a pendulum. You know, there, there's the legal battle over the Constitution of the United States of America, when the rights of the one outweigh the rights of the many, or the many outweigh the rights of the one, and we're in that same pendulum. The many. Or the one. And right now, the one, the pendulum is swung in their favor. And, you know, for better or worse, you could throw a lot of different mechanisms into this machine and, and why it's running the way it is. Again, for better or worse. This is not to take sides. This is sitting on the fence and looking at both sides. But, you know, we are definitely in a different world today than we are 
were in in the 80s. There's a lot of, uh, you know, here in New York City, let's use New York City as a microcosm of things. Coming out of the 70s, uh, police force in New York City had priorities. They had a lot of other things to worry about than the petty things that, you know, we argue or or think are just completely uh, onerous today. You know, there's a lot people took for granted back then that, you know, just don't jive today. Uh, now that the police force is twice the size that it was in the 80s, well, twice as many people are getting caught doing wrong things. <laughs> and, and there was never such thing as social media. You know, social media, all it takes is one person to go on social media, put a hashtag, get a following, and all of a sudden, you know, you're a movement. So it's changed. And I, I just hope that sober, sane, practical, pragmatic minds will prevail. Uh, you are listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, and yet again, I have lost my train of thought. <laughs> I guess I know I know that I was going to go somewhere, but I I I think you got where I'm between going the moon to go. and New York City. You know, you know what? I did, Let's I did. cycle back. What if we knew about Matt Harvey in 2015? What we know about him now. Oh my goodness! The things that would have been said about him. But I mean, the truth well, is, what, is what, I know, what I know, nobody is surprised yeah, by ahead, this, sorry. are they? I mean, I, I'm just, I'm sorry. No, I, I just no, feel no, like, I, it, I mean, you know, it, there were rumors it's not about surprising. Him in yeah, there were rumors the he, he 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 missed games. He missed, you know, he he was like late to the first playoff practice or something. He'd had bloody noses the playoff, on the, on he, the was, field. he was seen coming out of Stuyvesant Town, by the way. Talk about the New York deep cut <laughs> for that playoff game, okay? Um, coming mean, out of Not, not even playoff game, but for the practice. He, yeah, he was coming out of Stuyvesant Town. He was, he was coming out of Stuyvesant Town that morning when they were like, yo, dude, please, come on. <laughs> Well, well, I live very close to Stuyvesant Town. What's the matter with Stuyvesant Town? Is that like a notorious There's nothing the matter with Stuyvesant Town. It's just <laughs> what happens. <laughs> well, right. Apparently. I, I, think this, I think this goes to show and prove uh, that some things don't change. That if you're an athlete and you can help my team win, we will overlook a lot. But if you get involved in the wrong things and you suck and you can't help us, we're going to flush you down the toilet. It's been going on since the 80s with Lawrence Taylor. As a Giant fan, I hate to mention that, but it's true, and it happens today. If you can help me win, we'll overlook a lot, and and we'll sugarcoat, and we'll do PR stuff, and we'll get through it. Right. I'll tell a story that never that has never gotten told in uh, that I've never told in public fully other than just saying I partied with the New York Mets in 2012. And after an Ike Davis, a uh, city winery fundraiser where the Mets were bartending after they got swept by the Atlanta Braves, I, I was outside uh city winery watching Justin Turner 
sign whatever he could and then exchange numbers with the lady. And then I thought to myself, I think I'm going to, you know, make something of this, more or less, instead of go home. And I said to Justin Turner, I don't really feel like going home, more or less. <laughs> I forget exactly what I said. Can I chill with you? And he's like, yeah, sure. And around the corner was Lee Bright. Uh, uh, he, uh, he's a country star who was performing at this Dating event. And there outside Lee Bryce's bus was Josh Tolley smoking a stogie. Uh, there, there was another guy sitting next to him, literally sitting on the bus. And uh, Justin Turner and I went onto the bus with majority of the players in the back uh, uh, doing whatever could have possibly been happening. And... Uh, I got introduced to Ike Davis's agent, who eventually hooked me up with Larry uh, King's people, and that's how this podcast got started. And then we went to a club. The fire marshal of New York City drove me to this club. Dylan G., uh, who I talked to outside of the club before the fire marshal was able to get us in, was the man. And then I was sitting next to Ike Davis, John Neese, Kelly Shopik passed us. I even told Kelly Shopik, you're the man. Welcome to uh, the New York Mets family. Um, and Justin Turner ordered bottled service. And Matt Harvey passed us at some point and literally turned around and shook his ass at us. I remember sitting next to John Neese and saying to him, I've been giving you shit. And he said, you've been giving me shit? And I was like, yeah, I've been giving you shit. And, you know, obviously it's like all of a sudden you have a somebody you've been giving shit on a blanket level on social media in person with you, and you're just like feel a little bad because they're literally right there in the flesh with you. Kelly Shopik passes by, and John Neese says, hey, he's been giving me shit. And, John, uh, and Kelly Shopik just shrugs, like looks at us and shrugs. Um, so that was my experience with the 2012 New York Mets. Uh, uh, Nick Davis, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. I mean, you know, what's so funny is, like, you know, you, you, you talk about the 2012 New York Mets. I don't have, like, a lot of deep memories of the 2012 New York Mets. Um, I guess that was uh, – Harvey came up in uh, June or July, right? Uh, July. So End of after, July. End of July. So half Harvey was on the team. So to me, that was that was the great stirring, you know, had had begun when Harvey joined that team. But what's interesting about that story, Sam, and it's great, is you know they're just guys, they're just people, and you know there's no difference between Kelly Shopik and Josh Tolley and Gary Carter and Daryl Strawberry, other than the two of them were, you know, a little bit better at baseball than the other two. But they're all exceptionally much better than, than like, for instance, I am. Um, you know, and so they're, they're clearly upper-level, upper-echelon professional baseball players. But, you know, they're just you're telling a great story about some guys. But because they succeeded at this sport, not to the level that Strawberry and, and uh, you know, and Carter did, it, 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 there's just a charge to hear you tell that story. 
Um, but I, I just, you know, it's, it's getting at the humanity of the players that, and that's, you know, why I think the four of us talking love baseball more than maybe we love the other sports because it feels like you get to know the players better and you see their personalities and their characters in, in their, in, in on the field. And then just the back of a baseball card can, can tell these great stories about these characters. Um, and, and to me, that's what makes baseball the best game and and you know national league baseball in new york city uh as special as as we all find it to be greg wherever you want to run with it the weird part sam is i remember you writing about that night maybe not in the detail you've revealed tonight but i remember the the ike davis events what he was raising money for and you welcoming Kelly Shopik to New York or to the Mets family, however you put it, 10 years ago uh, in your blog, uh, Converted Mets Fan. Because the only two things I remember about Kelly Shopik as a Met was that he, he blocked the plate really well in the last National League game the Mets played against the Astros, which Ike Davis won with a home run, and that you said something nice to him at <laughs> this uh, this winery in Brooklyn. Um, and I remember nothing else about his coming and going. Um, can I, other can I, uh, I'll pass here. it back to you. I'll, I'll pass it back to you, Greg, right after this. But Kelly Shopik won a game against the Marlins in the ninth inning uh, that I remember biking through the forests of uh, Rochester listening to as Howie Rose described Kelly Shopik winning it in, on on the road, but go ahead, Greg. That's that's, well, that's another too, thing I remember about Kelly Shopik. Well, there weren't too many wins in the Kelly Shopik era or micro era of Mets baseball because the uh, the 2012 season sort of fell off a cliff at the All Star break, and uh, you know we we got our got our no hitter that year, and we got our unlikely 20 game winner. Uh, and we got this rookie pitcher who they were all this, this phenomenon who uh, we were going to look forward to. And we had Santana and Dickie and Harvey together in the same rotation for about a two or three turns at the end of July, the beginning of August. Uh, but that is, uh, that, that's neither here nor there. Uh, other than to say that, uh, you know, the kind of night you described uh, these fellows having, and the kind of nights that were more than implied uh, in, that, that Nick uh, helped uh, put out there uh, has been going on forever. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, the boys of summer, you know, went down to the the, uh, the neighborhood tavern after a day game and, and knocked back a few, uh, you know, uh, not, not, not to uh, put this in, 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 make light of it, but there, there is a certain boys will be boys to some of this, uh, just that the, the substances change and perhaps the stakes change through the years. But, uh, you know, you, you, had, you had a very interesting evening, and uh, I appreciate <laughs> that uh, you've retained the details and uh, opted to, to share them with us uh, 10 years later. Yeah, it's pretty great. It was, uh, it, it was 14th Street, and it was uh, right, yeah, right in the, uh, the, the heart of the meatpacking district. Mike? You know, here's the crazy thing. Hugh Casey once had a boxing match with Ernest Hemingway, drunk off their asses. 
where the next day when Ernest Hemingway saw the players that were involved, Kirby Higby and Hugh Casey, he said, I don't know what came over me. Uh, this has been going on, has been written about one way or another. Um, people like to party. Uh, people like to party, and and for whatever reason, uh, boys like to rough things up every so often. <laughs> that used to be a thing. Uh, maybe not not so much, but. Uh, I can tell you, being someone who lived all my teenage years in the 80s, few uh, were the fights with, en- with, with enemies. Most of the fights were with friends. You fought, you got up, and you went on, and you remained friends, and it was like things never happened. Uh, it's funny. Times change. Like I said, uh, if you experience the 70s, for instance, my sister's eight years older than me, so I kind of lived her teenage years when she experienced them, and I was looking, looking on and observing and absorbing. Then I lived mine, and you know things change and sensibilities change. And this is this is no different than the conversation we might have about playing stickball in the streets. Roughhousing was a thing. Boys will be boys. Uh, sure, alcohol plays a large part in that most of the times. Uh, but uh, it's all about maturity uh, and what you can get away with. That's, that's important. In the 80s, you can get away with more. In the 90s, you got away with less. At the turn of the century, you got away with even less. And right now, you get away with little. Uh, getting away with things that, you know, you otherwise don't want people knowing about. Uh, We live in a very microscopic world now. Uh, Big Brother is indeed watching. So it's up to you to go go out about your business in an adult manner or a responsible manner uh, and and, and behave. Behave. And I, I don't know what more to say, that with actions come consequences. So that's all I can really say. Uh, people are allowed to make their own decisions. I respect them. Just because you make a wrong decision, Sam, doesn't mean I'll like you any less, etc. And that means that goes for anybody. Uh, you know. Well, look, look. The club, so, the club, so far, remember the club downstairs so throwing me out of the place. They didn't exactly throw me out. They were just like, yo, you're <laughs> passing out next time, Davis. We need to get this you out of there. And, and that's the most ever that I've divulged on this podcast. <laughs> this, is, this is how I that's operate. That's very special. This is how I operate. If, if you have vices, if you have things, whoever you are, I have to make the decision, does that, is that going to affect me? And if the question, if the answer is no, then I'll be your friend. And if the answer is yes, then you know what? You will not have a part of my life. So I'm not out to change people. I'm out to respect people. Uh, and, and you know, this culture of if you're not with me, you're against me. Uh, I'm opposed to that. So it, it's time that we start respecting each other uh, and agree to disagree sometimes. 
Mike, it's very poignant what you said, and I'm going to reset the show before we continue. This is the Bedford and Sullivan podcast uh, you have been listening to, and I'm so thrilled to have uh, the director of Once Upon a Time in Queens, Nick Davis, the author of Facing Fear and Flushing, Greg Prince, and the Brooklyn Trolley blogger, Michael Collins, on the show. And, Nick, I'm going to go to you first uh, on this roundtable. Before we go to any last word, what is on your mind after everything we've talked about, Nick? Uh, You know, I just always end up (laughs) torn between two things. One, wishing 2015 had ended differently. And and but uh, just wanting us to to have a winning team again, you know, we talk about how we will, you know, Met fans sort of accept not winning, but I, I just love how Steve Cohen is going after things, and and I I I I would like very much to have the feeling we had in eighty five, eighty six, eighty seven, eighty eight, eighty nine, ninety. Any season that doesn't end with a World Series championship is a failure. Like, I don't really believe that, but I'd like to get to a point where I believe that again. So, that, and for whatever reason, well, that's, that's, where I, that, I, that's where I was. When, when you, you know, something about Harvey always yeah. triggers that for me because I, I, was, right. I, I was really under the impression that he was the third great, you know, for lack of a better word, messiah. We had Seaver, who in his third full season led us to the 1969 World Series championship. We had Gooden, who in his third full season was going to lead us to the World Series championship in 1986, and he did, sniffles or no sniffles. And then Harvey's (laughs) third full season was going to be 2015, after he'd taken 2014 away. And actually, it wasn't even his full season. And so right up until the moment when he talked Collins into staying in the game, I was 97% convinced we were going to win. And I just, uh, it was such a disappointment to me that I, I just always returned to it. Anyway, that, that this is not last words, but the, that's what was on my mind. Greg, go ahead. Oh, uh, you know, I, I, my, my, my head now is in, just thinking, you know, we just don't know. Uh, what these guys are going to do, what they are doing when we're not watching them, I suppose. I mean, that entire, in 2015, you know, accepting Zach Wheeler because he really wasn't on the scene, but that was the pitching staff that was going to not only make 2015 happen in the World Series, it was going to keep us going. And it got away with the exception of one pitcher who has, you know, gone on to be perhaps the greatest pitcher we've ever seen as Mets fans. Um, you know, I, I don't mean to draw parallels between Matt Harvey and, and what we now think of him after last week and Noah Syndergaard. Cause I always thought Noah Syndergaard was kind of in on the joke where Matt Harvey wasn't in terms of uh, being you know, right, right down to the superhero nickname. But, um, you know, Noah Syndergaard was so much a part of our lives. And you could say this about any med who sticks around for a little while and we talk about to excess, even if it's somebody like Jonathan Neese, who you brought up. Um, one day they were like, 
a super part of your life as a fan, and you you just never stop. You may, you may pause, but you never really stop thinking about them and talking about them in the context of what you're worried about. Oh, you know, what is what is Syndergaard going to do? Is Syndergaard going to get over his injury? Did you see the thing that Syndergaard tweeted today? Wasn't it? They say Syndergaard is looking really good. He's throwing 100 miles an hour in spring training. Oh, he's going to come back. He's he's going to take the qualifying offer. Well, what's that? Noah Syndergaard is gone. Then again, he may be having a, a wonderful <laughs> life being Noah Syndergaard in, in Anaheim, California, and he may have a terrific career. He may have, you know, he may have trouble getting it back together, take his money, and, you know, he, we will next see him at uh, Old Timers Day 2028 or something. Um, you just don't know. And I've, I've really felt this way, actually, since the aftermath of 1986. You know, the, the guy whose name I used to use in that uh, – in that little rant was Kevin McReynolds. You know, we spent five years talking about, hey, is, this, is Kevin McReynolds going to produce enough? Isn't Kevin McReynolds really one of the best, most underrated players in the National League? Shouldn't Kevin McReynolds maybe win the MVP? Why doesn't Kevin McReynolds care more? And, you know, just on and on. And then one day it's like, oh, they trade him to Kansas City. And he actually came back for a few minutes in 1994. But, you know, we, we, we just go through these guys. And all those guys you mentioned, Sam, um, who, who we never talk about, those 2012 Mets who, you know, who aren't Matt Harvey or who, who just sort of, you know, knock around in our subconscious or, or when we need to look something up on baseball reference. Uh, it's just interesting that, um, you know, Sam, 10 years ago, you, you were in the demographic of the players who you were hanging out with. I was thinking that, you know, if, if I suddenly, you know, started showing up wherever the Mets were hanging out, it would be bizarre because I'm nearly 60 years old and, uh, you know, I mean, maybe we could have a nice conversation, but, uh, you know, you, you get further and further away. And yet I still tune in to watch them, whoever they are in a given season. Um, so all, all, all I want is for them, whoever they are, uh, to be augmented and come back and, uh, yeah, give, a, give us a chance to, uh, to root them on to the improbable which is finally winning that third World Series in Mets history. And, you know, in the, in the context of being Mets fans, what, what else can you ask for? It's a lot creepier now saying it out, out loud, but Matthew McConaughey's, uh, you know, I keep growing older, they stay the mm-hmm. same age. <laughs> it's a lot creepier now that you say it out loud, but... Uh, like you said, and what's interesting about the 2015 uh, uh, World Series you're talking about, Greg, is that that was basically the rubber World Series of the Mets franchise. And unfortunately, when we all agreed that they could have won it, they should have won it. In fact, they had three out of four leagues of their losses. Um, Mike, wherever you want to go. It's it's funny. Uh, Mets Mets fans of a certain age were spoiled because we saw Tom Seaver, we saw Jerry Kuzmi, we saw John Matlock, and for some gentry and whoever you want to put on that list from that era, the Tug McGraw, uh, and we're spoiled. And then '86 came along, and we know about that pitching staff, damn good pitching staff. Uh, but then after that, you know, once upon a time, we got behind something called Generation K, 
that never materialized. And, you know, we fast forward to the 20 teens, and I, I called them the five hurlers of the metropolis. Harvey, <laughs> Wheeler, DeGrom, Matz, Syndergaard. And somehow that never came together. And I had high hopes for that rotation, for those five to group together. Like, say, uh, the Baltimore Orioles of the, uh, you know, turn of the 60s, early 70s with four 20-game winners on that staff. I envisioned something like that. I hoped for something like that. But the five hurlers of the metropolis uh, never joined forces the way I thought they might have, the way I thought they could have. Injury played a lot of part uh, in keeping that from coming together, et cetera, et cetera. But that's one of my biggest disappointments about you bring up 2015, but about the 20 teams themselves, that those five guys didn't dominate National League opponents the way I thought they could have, except for DeGrom, that is. Right. Uh, before we finish this chat, randomly I want to talk about the 2016 New York Mets in the context of, of the National League legacy. And I'll go to you first, Greg, since you are, are the, the, you know, the, the like I said, Mets fan incarnate, you easily are, are the Mets historian in my book. So the 2016 New York, New York Mets, in National League legacy? Well, at, at the moment, they are the last almost great uh, New York National League team because they're the last ones to go to a postseason and the last ones to, to put on a successful rush to the postseason. And I have to say, sort of uh, in the realm of kind of as, as much as I relish what revel in what the 86 Mets did, but I still love the 85 team just that much more. There's something about that 2016 season that I throw my arms around in a way I don't think I quite do with the 2015 Mets because it was an echo to me of the 73 pennant race, the way they were just fumfering around in late August, and then they got it together. Again, different situation, different scenario, because you had a wild card. You had two wild cards. And they had, down the stretch, one of the most cotton candy soft schedules you could have possibly prayed for. But then again, they were going to play those teams at some point. They just had them all saved up to the end. The way that that team came together with such a one-year, not even one-month cast of characters, T.J. Rivera and Jose Reyes playing third base and James Loney at first base and... Uh, you know, Brandon Nimmo coming off the bench and Rene Rivera kind of usurping the catching role. And other than Syndergaard and Cologne, like no rotation to speak of. They're throwing Robert Gazelman and Seth Lugo out there and hoping for the best, and that's what you got. Um, you know, in the end, there's sort of an asterisk or a footnote or, you know, something that is not in full – Pike account letters because, you know, they played one game in the postseason and they lost it. 
and when you lose one postseason game and you're out, it, it kind of takes the the, uh, the shine off of what you accomplished. But I tell you, for about five weeks, I was just mesmerized by them, uh, much like the 73 season, because if you lived through the 73 season, you know, up until the end of August, it was a pretty blah season. And then it became this thing that we still talk about. I don't know to, to what extent people will still be talking about the 2016 Mets, I don't think people talk about them much at all until you just asked about them. But I got a huge kick out of them. And in a way, it sort of cemented the idea that there was a little bit of an era there in 2015 and 2016, a little bit of an era of success. Didn't last very long. It was over by April of 2017. But, you know, between 15 and 16, they sort of propped up National League Baseball in New York. And I thought, like, okay, all of that, that, I don't want to say misery because misery should be reserved for the really, really miserable years like 77 and 93, but just that not getting anywhere feeling I had from 09 until 14 seemed to be behind us. And I thought, okay, you know, we are a consistent contender and we haven't been, we had like basically two good months in 2019 and everything else has just been despondent. And, you know, what we have now is hope in Steve Cohen and the fact that he spent some money and we've got some players and we're going to, because of the lockout, we really don't know who the rest of our players are. So again, you know, you would have had, a, you know, this is something that gets said an awful lot about the Mets of the mid and to, to late eighties. Oh, if only the wild card had existed back then, look at how many times we would have gone to the playoffs. You know, I try not to, to dabble in that because, Hey, Maybe the uh, the wild card Cincinnati Reds knock off the Mets in the first round of uh, this expanded 1986 uh, NLDS that uh, didn't exist. You know, you don't you don't want to play with fire when you're playing with time, I suppose. But there were probably a lot of teams that won 87 games among the Giants and the Dodgers and the Mets that could have made hay with a wild card. If you're asking me the legacy. Of the uh, in, of the 2016 Mets in that regard. I mean, as far as the legacy of the team itself, you know, that was the year of Nimmo and Lugo and Gazelman coming up as rookies, and Conforto taking a step forward and then a step back, and a bunch of guys who, you know, were either injured or they weren't here uh, thereafter. And and the one full year, more or less, of Yoenis Cespedes, which I think, you know, it would be nice to think that he's kind of cemented his legacy, but I don't think anybody really remembers 2016 at this point. There was, there was a move on, <laughs> if you remember. Uh, he hit the first home, uh, certainly among Mets, the first home run to reach the the uh, promenade level at City Field. And there was a yeah. petition going around online, let's paint that seat the color of Cespedes's compression sleeve, the canary, yellow, green, whatever you would call it. <laughs> sort of like the one red seat in Fenway Park that Ted Williams reached. And I thought it was brilliant, and I still wish they would do it. And the fact that Cespedes is sort of left on bad terms to me shouldn't matter. That was a great moment. It was a, a great period where we had that one guy, you know, before Alonso and, you know, after Piazza, <laughs> well after Piazza. And, you know, if, if for some strange reason this crossed Steve Cohen's desk next year, and, oh, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Give the people what they want, like with the black uniforms and old-timers day. I, I, I'd go to that. I think this is fantastic. But, uh, you know, it's just one of those things that kind of came and went. You know, 
it was an 87-win team that, that was in the right place at the right time. But, you know, what what a time we had getting there. I love that. It was the last – I can't say it's the last thing I, I enjoyed. I enjoyed that, that two-month stretch in, in 2019 where they almost sort of kind of contended. But um, 2016, they gave, they gave me an excuse to buy a T-shirt. Anytime I can buy licensed postseason merchandise, especially if it's on sale, <laughs> um, I love it. And I still, it still comes up in my T-shirt rotation every couple of months. It says, you know, like, it's – like we're here to rain or something where, you know, some terrible pun like that, but I guess they had for all of the rain <laughs> teams. Yeah. And, and like when I was wearing it in the fall of 2016, I'm like, yeah, yeah. I wear it now. I'm like, God, I look ridiculous, <laughs> but I still wear it to this day. Nick, I think that's a great idea with the canary yellow. I mean, regardless of what happened with the Seth for this era, specifically with his contract, Talking about the 2016 team and the 2015 team, I think that, like, I love these little microcosms of Mets fandom and that separates us from the Yankees in that we, like, we understand that success doesn't happen as often as it does for the Yankees. And that's why we just soak up the good times. Yes, yes. And that, that rush in 2016 was awfully great. And the 2019, I also love the, those, those moments when it seemed like maybe it's actually going to happen in 2019. Really, the Frazier home run, you know, that, that game was, was magical at the yeah. end of whatever winning streak was. that was. Yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm getting to the point where I, I'm, I'm, I'm finished with these Pyrrhic victories. I want a real victory. <laughs> I want us to win again. And yeah, I'm gotta, worried gotta, about – I'm sorry. I told think, Nick this, that, that, that his, yeah. his movie sort of spo- – in, in a way sort of took the, the sheen off a lot of those Pyrrhic or near victories that I worship. I mean, just like I said, 80, 85 was my favorite team. The 99 and probably always will be my favorite season uh, for reasons I don't need to go into here. But um, – you know, I look at all those teams that I loved and still love, you know, 16, 99, 06, 2000, so on and so forth. And after watching Once Upon a Time in Queens, I'm like, you know what? Those guys won. Yeah. <laughs> That's different. That is something completely yeah. different. And I'd like to get there, yeah. too. And I think Steve Cohen would like to get there. I'm I'm worried about the pitching. I, I you know, the, the you know, we were talking about the young pitchers and, you know, Seaver, Kuzman, Matlack, Gentry, you know, it, it's in the, I feel like it's in our DNA to have good young pitchers and okay. Generation K didn't work out. And certainly the five, the five hurlers of the metropolis, which I love, I never heard that phrase. It's so brilliant. Like, um, <laughs> but but I'm I'm worried about an absence of that on this current uh, pitching staff, and I realize we're going over and we should have our final says. But I I just I, I it's why I'm sorry to, I was so sorry to see Syndergaard go and Matt not come back when he sort of you know uh, flirted with us there briefly um, before Steve Cohen got all angry about it. But um, I I worry that you know. Our, our pitching staff is, is overloaded with yeah, great guys in their thirties. And I, I like those young guns and it's, uh, I'm just, I'm hoping that we can develop a few more young guns because the other thing is you mm-hmm. never, you never know. You think, Oh, we'll be here again. 
you know, oh, right. 2015. Yeah, we should have won, but we, well, we never got there again. And sometimes it is true. We lose to the Cardinals in 85. Oh, we're going to get them next year. And we do. But how often does that happen where you think, okay, we're, you know, the, the Bulls are knocking on the door with the Pistons, but they're going to break through. And then they do. <laughs> it's just, it, it's not that, you know, you feel it a lot, but it doesn't, doesn't mean it's actually going to happen. And you have to seize, and this is what the 86 Mets did so brilliantly. They seized the moment, you know, you, you, you got down to them and you were dead, you know, down three runs in the third inning game's over, you know, um, it would be nice if we could, you know, seize the moment. Okay. we got DeGrom and Scherzer. Let's build around them and win this year. No more, you know, well, it's a three-year plan. It's a five-year plan. How about it's a six-month plan? Hmm. <laughs> Mike, the 2016 New York Mets, but the last game you and I together were at, uh, the 2019 New York Mets. Um, hmm. I, regardless of the fact that they didn't make the playoffs, uh, that basically encompasses what it's all about is that that game between you and me and many Mets fans will always live in, in lore because there was something about the hope at the end of that. At the end of the stretch, we didn't completely go over the hump, but the promise, the, the hope springs eternal, ironically, at the end of fall. Baseball will always give you those singular standalone moments regardless of what transpired during the season. That's the beauty of baseball. Standalone moments. That game was a standalone moment. We will cherish that. We will speak about that for years to come. That's the beauty of baseball. Cycling back to 2016, to me that was a mixed bag of goods. Yes, we made the playoffs. Got to enjoy that. That was fun. However, spinning off of something that Nick said, uh, look, it took Frank Cashin seven years to finally raise that championship trophy. We knocked on the door 84 and 85 and busted it down in 86. And this is where I think the Mets went awry in or after 2015. Uh, we did well. We surged. We had an incredible finish to the regular season. And what Daniel Murphy did in the playoffs, I mean, that goes forever in Mets lore. However, it changed the front office's mentality, and they went into a win-now mode. And I think that completely derailed them uh, and, because I thought they were still a rebuilding team. And it completely flew barred the 27, uh, 17, and 2018 season. Mm. Uh, so that's why I call 2016 a mixed bag of goods. Uh, off the off of the success of 15, uh, they changed. They went to win now mode, and I just don't think they were there. Mm. They had a great run in 15, but I just don't think they were there. And it completely threw barred the following two seasons, if not three, or all the time since then, until Mr. Cohen took over. You see, so knocking on the door, there's something to that. 
And I, I think the front office flipped the switch just a bit prematurely because, you know, uh, we we weren't pounding on that door pretty, you know, pretty intensely yet. We weren't there. So that's why I think 2016 was a mixed bag because we were just living off of what we had uh, and, and things obviously started going awry with with injuries. And like I said, you know, the hurlers of the metropolis, they couldn't stay healthy at the same time. We got uh, two out of three. We got four out of five. We got two out of five, but never five out of five. Maybe it's just a handful of games, uh, and that was a fleeting moment. So, uh, but the offense and what they put on the field just wasn't enough. And to me, Jay Bruce was the poster child of that. I wasn't a fan of that, and I'm still not a fan of that transaction. Uh, and that's where I think the Mets went into folly. Uh, maybe they felt limited in their uh, uh, options to make transactions, but then again, you got to look at the old regime and how they operated and conducted business. And now I think we're uh, about to experience a whole <laughs> new ball game. The Well Ponds are a whole other podcast. You have been listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, ask the listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And one way or another, everything informs the way the fan works within all this context. And I thank everybody who has been on this podcast first starting with the director of Once Upon a Time in Queens, Nick Davis, uh, author, Faith and Fear and Slushy, Greg um, and the Brooklyn Trolley blogger, Michael Colant, for joining us tonight. And without further ado, we segue over to the final word, and we will start with, uh, I, I think, since it was his first time on this podcast, the uh, valedictorian of the podcast, or... or, or However, I could, uh, whatever phrase I could use, Nick Davis, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I am always trying to figure out how to tell the story best. And one way or another, you have helped me within the context of the National League legacy. You have helped me tell the story. Great. I think the word you were looking for is caboose. <laughs> I think, I think I'm the caboose of this podcast. It probably is. Uh, it's, been, it's been a delight to be here, and, and thank you for having me. Happy to uh, talk New York National League baseball for as long as there is New York National League baseball. Exactly, and hopefully it continues to be split this way, even though we have to teach the children why it is split. Uh, Greg Prince. Faith and fear and flushing, shameless plug, by all means. Um, I just want to read a quote on the designated hitter. Ridiculous. No. If, you, if you want to substitute Braun for brain in baseball, go all the way and let a club play nine defensive players in the field and then have nine sluggers do all the hitting. The very essence of baseball strategy stems from such moves as the intentional pass by which one manager forces the other manager to decide whether to remove his pitcher for a hitter or let him stay. Uh, that was John McGraw in 1928 uh, when, mm. when asked about the concept of allowing uh, a regular pinch hitter for pitchers. 
And uh, if it was good enough for John McGraw, not not to be uh, too much of a funny duddy, it's good enough for me. So um, you know, again, the the, la- <laughs> the the last strand of difference, other than sentimental, of what uh, differentiates National League baseball from all other comers, uh, I would like to maintain that. But uh, you know what? I'm a bad customer, or I'm I'm too good a customer, whatever you would call me, because I don't have it in me to say. Well, I'm out of here if they bring the DH to the National League. So I'll, I'll, I will try to, as eloquently as possible, whine and moan about it, but I'll be there, and uh, even if the batting order doesn't make any sense to me. So uh, with that, uh, thank you very much uh, for the opportunity to, uh, to spend some time in the National League in New York tonight, uh, all of you gentlemen, and thanks for the invite, Sam. Nick, I'm going to go back to you for your shameless plug. But first, Mike, shameless plug and last word, please. Oh, Mike, dollar in the jar. PayPal me, please. <laughs> dollar in the jar. Brooklyn trolley blogger apologizes. Uh, I've been idle of late, but I'll be picking up action again. Uh, change. You know, some of us, we've seen the advent of free agency. We've seen baseball change. We're not averse to change. We live with change, and we've embraced change in baseball. But uh, Nick, you know, brought up something early in the show uh, about uh, baseball turning into the other leagues and you know, bleeding conferences, this, that, and when we had identity with the National League office and American League office. So we've seen a lot of change. Uh, We've seen work stoppages, and this hasn't changed. This is the same problem going on since the 1880s. Again, it's the owners trying to protect themselves from themselves. Uh, And that's what is really going on here. And, you know, this is collective bargaining, and when they reach an agreement, and that's the only way something's going to happen, is both sides got to, you know, have to make compromises. We'll give you this if we get that, blah, blah, blah. But this is the same old story. And people born in the 2020s are going to be watching a completely different game 20 and 30 years from now. The same way we're talking now this evening about how the game has changed on us over the last 30 and 40 years. And again, we've seen Marvin Miller in action. We saw this whole process, you know, uh, take off like the Big Bang. Because prior to that, it was the reserve clause that the owners imposed upon players because they were protecting themselves from themselves. Even back in the 19th century, baseball players on average were making at least seven or eight times more than the common person. Again, keep it all relative. Nothing has changed. Everything changes around us, but in this one particular instance, baseball has not changed. Let's see what happens. And you know what? If they don't want to reach an agreement, Screw them. 
I got the Brooklyn Cyclones, a historic game coming up, right, Sam? Yeah. The first, yeah. The first professional the first professional baseball game to take place in the borough of Brooklyn in April since the Dodgers last did it in nineteen fifty seven. And then we got the uh Staten Island Ferry Hawks making their debut in the Atlantic League. And we'll be sure to go out there, root them on when they take out the Long Island Ducks. Long live independent baseball. That's all I can say. Better for them that baseball stays out and, and continues with their disagreement. Hooray for the little guy. Here, here. Rah, rah, rah. And whatever, uh, uh, you know, non-2022 thing we can say. That that connects us to the old era. And uh, before we go, Nick, Nick Davis, the great director of Once Upon a Time in Queens, please once more tell everybody, shamelessly plugging, where they can find you. Uh, where they can find me? Uh, oh, I, I well, who cares where they can find me? They can find the film on uh, Apple. And uh, maybe even well, ESPN Plus, of course. Um, but uh, you know, iTunes. You can you can watch the the thing, and you can just see me on Twitter. I try and do the Twitter thing, but I don't really know what I'm doing at Nick Davis Prods. I think it is. Um, and uh, yeah, well, thank you again, Sam, for having me. Uh, I, I I think we're going to have baseball, uh, you know, very very soon. I agree. It seems like they're going to be able to get this done one way or another. But from my experience from, you know, Larry McPhail brought Leo DeRocher a set of golf clubs to try to get him to 12,500 as a player in 1938. My series starts in 1938, 1938 to 1941 would be the hypothetical first season. And as we talk about the 1986 New York Mets, the 1986 New York Mets only happened, the arguably greatest National League franchise in New York baseball history, happened because Walter O'Malley and Horace Stoneham needed something different. And they couldn't live without each other. The only way either of those moves happens is with the other, one way or another. Uh, as much as the Giants may have moved to Minnesota, um, Walter O'Malley was right that they needed their rivalry. And here we are talking about baseball and talking about the legacy without talking about what the fact that they were able to carry over in the West Coast. One way or another, baseball carries over. Baseball's legacy carries over, whether it's this region or the region that lost us because of those teams, leaving us. But it's weird the way forks in the road work. It's weird the way life comes together to have decisions go off as yeses or noes. We hate the fact that they left us behind, but thank God 
for the 1962 New York Mets, the 1969 New York Mets, the 1973 New York Mets, the 1986 New York Mets, and everything in between that we have talked about on this podcast tonight. Thank God for the 1977 New York Mets, the 1978 New York Mets, the 1984 Well, let's not go overboard. The 19... <laughs> <laughs> hey, Bobby Valentine won that double dumb contest fair and square. Anyway, uh... as, as, as somebody who was born in 1985, I appreciate everything for better or worse that comes before, that comes after, and that informs us to make better decisions in the now. And ladies and gentlemen, that's all I have to say for the Veterans and Sullivan Podcast. Thank you for listening. Continue to listen. Go watch Once Upon a Time in Queens. Go to Faith and Fear and Flushing. And make sure you go to the Brooklyn Trolley blogger.blogspot.com. It's all prevalent in everything we're talking about. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Greg. Take care.